Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this rather one-off special edition of the Uncensored CMO. Because for the first time in this series, I find myself on the other side of the interview. Yes, that's right. You've heard it correctly. I'm handing over control to producer James to ask me the questions and put me on the spot. Now, James uh, has a very successful podcast of his own and he is a master interviewer, so I don't get away lightly. But, you know, I thought, wouldn't it be great just to share some of the stories about my career, some of the highlights, but also some of the things I've failed at. When I was thinking about what to call this episode, the uh, title that came to mind was How I Got Fired Twice. That's right, not only got fired twice, but twice in the same year. I'm sure that's an accolade that not many people want, but uh, anyway, I've managed to achieve it. But the funny thing about failure is actually how much you learn from it. And there are some incredible lessons to be learnt when things go wrong, um, as you'll find out in this episode when you listen to it. Anyway, I've well and truly given control to James. And in a slight, shall we call it, irony, I've actually had to censor myself. There are a couple of sections that you'll notice as I talk. I reveal a couple of bits of what others would deem as sensitive information which had to be censored out. So I hope you don't mind, but the uncensored CMO has had to get himself slightly censored in a couple of points in this. But I hope that doesn't detract from an otherwise fantastic conversation about life, career and how I got fired twice. Here it is. Hello, John, and welcome to the Uncensored CMO. How are you? I'm good, mate. This feels a bit weird, I have to say. I'm, I'm already feeling a bit out of control because you're yeah. in the box seat asking the questions. Well, I, I've had plenty of fun over the years grilling you over a beer or over lunch about your past. So I'm this interested. This is what worries to... me, you realise. <laughs> <laughs> it will be fun and interesting to find more about the man behind the podcast because you've had a really interesting career with some really high profile roles. You've been marketing director at LeakSaid and a brief stint at CMO at BrewDog. They, they were quite public. A lot of people can read about that, but I'm interested in what you learned from each of those times. But we'll get onto that a little bit later. But what I'm interested in now, John, is cast your mind back to a young John Evans. How did you land in marketing? I actually started out in a very different career path doing economics and finance. So I went to Brunel University and studied that. And it was rather weird, actually, because in my final year, which is a bit of a silly point to do this, but in my final year, having done a year out in business, I worked for Coopers and Lybrand, the accountants. I worked for a merchant bank called Climate Benson. Um, had a really great learning experience, but actually decided this wasn't for me. And um, it was a chance encounter. I was working in the tax department at Coopers and Lybrand, and I interviewed this guy about his tax return because I was working out how much he owed the Inland Revenue. And I sat there, and as I listened to him talk about what he did, I'm like, damn it, man, I'm on the wrong side of the table. So I said, your job sounds really cool. What do you do? And he, he was actually the marketing director of a data company called Dun & Bradstreet. I don't think they exist now or they may exist in another guise. And I said, I'm really, I, I'm actually on the wrong side of the table. And so from that point on, I suddenly decided I wanted to get a career in marketing. But of course, a guy with a finance degree who studied economics as well, who had a year in the city to his name, it's not really the perfect start to go and go and get into the kind of creative industry. So it was, a, it was an unusual point to start really. So you never really wanted to go into marketing, not growing up. Finance seemed to be where you were headed. And it was just this one pivotal conversation that completely changed your mindset. The, the next day, did you start to go and look for marketing jobs and figure out how you could get a job within marketing or creative stuff? How did you end up transitioning into well, marketing? It's a, it, 
you're right. It's a funny one. It's interesting how you describe it because I think I did finance because that's what I was good at and that's what I got the highest grades at school. So I think I was being captain sensible and going, well, I, I know I can get an A in economics, so let's go and study economics and finance is where the money's made, so let's go and do finance. And what I didn't do was actually sit and think about what actually do I enjoy and what do I you know want to do? And actually, if I look, at, if I look back at my early kind of life as a teenager I was always setting up little hustles you know my dad owned a wood for example and I, I used to buy trees off him for a pound cut them down into firewood put them in bags and sell them around the, the local village for three pounds 75 I remember all the details it's funny how you know you don't forget these things so you know I and so actually what I realized is I the fun bit is creating the money, not accounting for the money. And that's what I realized in that interaction with this guy is that I was there adding the numbers up, but he was there creating the numbers. And so it was only then that I realized that there was this profession called marketing where you're actually responsible for the future, not for the past. And, and that was the kind of little sort of sort of thing that, that, that triggered me to realize that there was a name for the thing that I liked doing and it was called marketing. But in terms of how I got into it... Um, it was a bit of hustle, to be honest with you, because I didn't have a track record. There's nothing in my CV necessarily mm -hmm. that said, this guy is creative, this guy should be a marketeer. And actually, just I, I asked one of my mates' dads for some advice. He was an IT consultant, so again, not necessarily in marketing either. And he said, well, listen, I'm doing some consultancy for... He was building a data warehouse for Britvic where all their marketing and sales data would basically be collected in this big hub that they could then start to track and analyze. You know, this is back in 1999. It's quite a long time ago. But it was very early sort of data warehousing. And he said, listen, I'll take your CV along to Britvic and just say, is there anybody that would be interested, you know, in taking this guy on in a marketing capacity? And I actually landed a job... Um, as Britvic's first data analyst, which sounds very, not very marketing, mm. but I was in the marketing function doing what I was good at, which was data analysis, you know, uh, looking at finance and so on and doing reports and stuff. But critically, I was in the marketing, the broader marketing function. We, I mean, it's called category management where you sort of gave advice to retailers on what the data was telling them about sales and so on. So what I did is I kind of used my skill yeah. set but in a marketing context to build the relationships that I needed. And what I did is I then edged closer to the, to, to the function I wanted to be in really. And I sort of, I did some little bunny hops. So it probably took me three years, I think, from joining Britvic, being a data analyst to then being in a traditional marketing role. So that's kind of how it happened. Mm -hmm. So an interesting transition using some of the skills you previously had with data and economics and numbers and then joined a marketing team doing what you were good at and then started yeah. to plant some seeds to move over to marketing. So after those three years, were you just in a full on marketing role? I almost so listen I got I I have to say I got very lucky now I mean I think luck comes into it it's also what you do with your luck that, that that's important as we know I I got a bit of a break where I I sort of volunteered to join a project to launch a kids drink called fruit shoots now of course at the time this is a long time ago but the kids would drink cartons basic cartons were the default category of drink that as a kid in fact adults would drink cartons too but it was the format for lunchbox for school and so on 
And um, a wonderful uh, person who'd come up with this idea of putting a little sports drink, you know, and calling it Fruit Shoot from Robinson's. And it, it was ace. And I, I was on the project team, actually, which was really exciting. I was basically in charge of the launch. So I didn't invent it. Uh, my mm-hmm. job wasn't that. But my job was to launch it to customers. So, you know, I, I, did, I created lunch boxes that we put it inside that we'd take to every customer. And I basically was in charge of the PR, trade PR, the customer selling presentation, the customer kind of engagement that happened. And, and basically, I went on a roadshow for, you know, many weeks, basically selling it. And it was it was a bit of an overindulgence because it was such an easy sell because it was so cool and so revolutionary and so obviously right that every single customer said yes. So I probably got overindulged by the first bit of innovation I worked on just happened to be one of the best bits of innovation that, that category has ever seen. But I got a love for invention and innovation and so on. So that was my first core marketing job. Um, but then I hit disappointment. And my perfect job came up at Britvic, which was the Pepsi Max brand manager. Mm-hmm. Now, I literally did everything to get that job because as a young guy, kind of 22, 23, Pepsi Max, you know, back in the day, Pepsi Max was kind of like Red Bull is today. It was sort of the the drink that you would have if you were kind of going to skate parks or going to festivals. It, it kind of had that kudos about it. You know, it was based on Mountain Dew advertising from the US. It was super cool. And anyway, I didn't get the job. I was absolutely gutted. And it was because they thought I wasn't creative. And it really annoyed me because they looked at my degree and said, you're the numbers guy. You've worked with customers. You're the commercial guy. You're not the creative guy. And it's one of the bits of feedback in my career that has kind of hurt a bit because I knew I had it in me because I was always coming up with ideas. I was always being creative and inventive, but I just never been given the chance. And so when I got the feedback, it was crushing. It really crushed me because I was like, do you know what? I know I can do this and I know it's just simply I haven't had the chance to. So I took a brave pill and actually left Britvic after three years, Mm -hmm. having not got the job I wanted to and went to a much smaller company which was a wine and spirit company called First Drinks. Mm -hmm. And I got a brand manager role there. And of course, they saw my big experience at Britvic and they loved it. They they went, wow, you're super qualified. We know you haven't necessarily got the full, you know, set of experience, but you bring so much and, you know, you've got the raw potential. And and I love that. I worked there for three years and I, it was one of the most magical times of my career because, and this is a real lesson, actually. Sometimes you have to go back to go forwards because... In that situation, I went to a much smaller company, smaller budgets, on paper, a career step back. But I tell you what, it boosted me massively because I was given way more responsibility. I was I, I learned the whole marketing mix. I was trusted and backed and supported in a way that I don't think a big company would do. And actually, I would always recommend anybody listening, if you want to accelerate your career, sometimes going to what may be perceived as less glamorous, a smaller company, you actually accelerate your learning far better. The irony of the story is I then got hired back by Britvic <laughs> to go back at about three pay grades higher than I left. So I sort of arrived back kind of with a bit of schadenfreude to go, oh, this is nice. You know, I'm finally being seen and valued, you know, in, in a way that maybe I'd never have got there had I never done that. So it, it seems like you, yeah, it's funny how that went full circle, but it seems like you had, you look back on working at First Drinks very fondly. Are there any sort of key moments throughout your two, three years there that you look back on that you really enjoyed or things where, or times where it didn't go so well? 
Mate, I tell you, th- 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 there's one thing that stands out massively. Good, I'll, I'll quickly tell you the good thing and then I'll tell you the thing that really <laughs> blew up for me, literally. So listen, the people were wonderful. There was a very talented team and John, he was also called John, who was the marketing director, super smart guy and Fiona, my boss, super smart. Mm-hmm. So I had brilliant mentors there and I learned so much of the theory of marketing and best practice. And I was very honored to work with people. So, I mean, the lesson there is, pick your boss, right? When you're going for a job, do your due diligence. Pick people that you can learn from. You'll learn way more from a good boss than you will from a good company process kind of thing. So that's the good thing. So number one, that was a big thing. The standout experience, and and, and look, honestly, if you told me this is going to happen, I wouldn't have believed me. So so listen, please trust me on this one and you can look it up online. There, there is evidence. Um, I, I got a little break. So I was working on an Italian liqueur brand called Di Sarono Amaretto, which you might recognize it's that almonds liqueur in, in a kind of square bottle that people put in coffee and have in cocktails at Christmas. The, the owners of the brand came over to the UK and said, we've got this big new advertising campaign, but unfortunately it fell foul of the UK legislation. So mm-hmm. we, we couldn't run it. So we had to come up with our own campaign, which is great. Now, if you remember, I hadn't got my break at Britvix. So I was desperate to prove that I was Mr. Creative. <laughs> and I came up with this idea Now, the idea was, you know, when you're on the tube and you get the blast of air that comes up and Mm -hmm. down as you're going down the escalators. And you know how when you go into a supermarket, they pump the smell of bread from the bakery Uh to to give you that experience. I thought the almond liqueur amaretto has got such a distinctive smell. (laughs) And I went, this is brilliant. I'm going to pump the smell of almonds through the underground and I'm going to give away little mini bottles as people come out of the escalators. And I'm going to take out every bit of advertising on the escalator. So you, you see amaretto, you smell amaretto, you taste Bombarding amaretto. the senses. Yes. And it, this is going to be before Christmas. 80% of amaretto is sold at Christmas, right? So that was the thing. Now, timing is everything and everything is timing. And I'll tell you for why. Because this was 2002. Now, a short history lesson, it becomes very important. 2002, we were preparing to go to war with Iraq. Now, Tony Blair was basically putting together the dossier of evidence, trying to find evidence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was the big political climate at the time. There was enormous anxiety from the Home Office about the threat of terrorist attacks in the UK because of this tension. And on the Monday, my campaign went live, nine o'clock on Monday morning. Every newspaper ran with a headline. And the headline was this. The Home Office offers guidance to the public to be vigilant for terrorist attacks. The number one advice, look out for the smell of almonds in the underground, because almond is what cyanide smells like. Now, you could not make this up. The day... I pump almonds through the underground is the day the government and the home office tell people to watch out for almond smells in the underground. <laughs> did, did you, did you, like, at what point did you find out that this advice has gone out? And, like, did you have to put a stop to it immediately? Did the TFL guys you were working with think, what is going on? Well, this was the funny thing. So I was away at, a, I was doing a trade show. There's lots of trade, sh- there's lots of trade shows that happened before Christmas. I can't remember what it was called. Some house and drink show, right? In London. So I was there literally sampling Di Sirono because I'm, I'm the brand manager. That's my job to, you know, go and do the hustle. And um, I picked my phone up at lunchtime and I've got 12 missed messages and I'm not that popular by the way so I don't usually get 12 messages you know in a morning right I'm like oh something's happened anyway and this is the most surreal event ever 
I listened to it and it goes, hi, I'm from the Daily Mail. Hi, it's from the Times. And I'm like, why are these people calling me? And then, then our, our head of PR, she says, John, there's been a bit of an incident. And I'm like, what's that? Like literally every newspaper's run with the story and everyone's panicking. There is panic in the underground at, because everyone's smelling, the, you know, so we've had to turn it off. Anyway, I, I got to speak to the underground and you know what? I, I didn't realize this, but there are scares like this that happen almost every day. And actually the, the underground were quite happy to ride this one out. But from a reputational brand point of view, obviously the company had a responsibility to, you know, do the right thing and not cause panic and, and damage. So we, we chose to turn, obviously, the centimeters off. But the irony of the story is I was quoted in every single newspaper. I was the subject of Have I Got News For You that weekend where the celebrities have to guess what the story is. And my story was the story discussed on TV. And there were articles written about when marketing goes wrong. It was it was just like infamous. And yeah, we, we had a lot of fun. And do you know what the nice thing was? Um, actually, it made the headlines in Italy as well, in the national newspaper. So one of the most awkward conversations was with the founder of, with the owner, family <laughs> owner of the company about what on earth had gone wrong. Because of course it got exaggerated. So by the time it hit, Italy the story was one and a half million pounds goes down the drain as junior brand manager you know causes panic in the under you know, it, it sort of becomes so exaggerated by this point and all that happened is oh, the only thing that happened is I had to turn the centimeter off you know that was actually the only cost to it but listen sales went up 15 percent we hit our record <laughs> ever sales so listen all PR can sometimes be good PR what a fantastic story did you get did you get in trouble with your bosses or was it do you know what I got it was we had our monthly team meeting and this was December Christmas and they'd set it up in such a way as they made sure I was the last one in the room and I walked into a massive round of applause and they'd bought me a marketing for dummies book but they'd wrapped it up in the headlines from the newspaper and said you might want to read this John before you do anything else what a brilliant story so uh, after you leave first drinks and um, you go full circle you go back to Britvic why'd you go back to Britvic when you're having so much fun in this, in this brand manager role Good question. So listen, what, what the, the downside sometimes with, with, with roles in small companies is there's a lack of headroom. So, you, you know, in three years, I've done three roles and had a brilliant time, learned so much. It was actually, it, I think in my career, what I've realized is it's always about the people. Mm -hmm. And my mentor from Britvic was a wonderful guy called Alan Beanie, who was the strategy director for Britvic, the smartest person I know. He's just really clever and very insightful. And he had been given the job as managing director for Britvic International. And he had been given a brief to basically launch Fruit Shoot, which I'd been involved in the original launch, take Fruit Shoot and make it global. And he phoned me up and he said, John, listen, I don't know many marketers. You are someone I trust. I really enjoyed working with you. Would you be open to coming back and helping me set up the marketing function in the international team and take Fruit Shoot, which you know, and make it a big international success? Now, one of the thing, one of the boxes that I felt I needed to tick, rightly or wrongly, you know, again, I'm still making my mark, is international marketing. So it's one of those things where people find it very hard to get into international roles and given I love innovation, I was very proud of my work on Fruit Shoot. And I also really respected Alan and wanted to learn from him. Mm -hmm. Then I sort of jumped at the chance. It made it, it made a ton of sense. So that's what led me there. Yeah. As an ambitious fellow going for someone with more hetero working on an international brand. How did that go for you? Because I know sort of your time at Britvic, or well, certainly your second center 
Britvic was your longest stint at a yes, company. It was. Um, you made a lot of progress throughout it. Yeah, there were two chapters to my second stint at Britvic, actually, which I'm very proud of both, actually, and learned a huge amount. So chapter one was the international expansion. And so I initially worked for, for Alan and then uh, a guy, Clark McElroy, probably the most inspirational boss I've worked for and learned so much about, particularly learned about selling. In fact, I learned most of my sales, you know, skills from him actually, because he was a master at it. And we basically had an ambition to double the business in three, which we hit with about a month to go. And it, I learned so much about how you launch and how you scale a business. So I launched Fruit Shoot in something like 20 markets. I got it wrong a lot of the time. In fact, there were markets where it didn't work and there were lessons I learned. And I also got it very right. I mean, won, won an Effie Award, for example, for you know for the adver- global advertising campaign I created because it worked very well. And I won, I won some industry awards as well for the for the launches that we ran. So, you know, learned so much about not just marketing, but selling, the importance of distribution, you know, a, a, and how you get started when you're starting with nothing, really. So had a really fantastic run. That was three years. Again, you had to pull me kicking and screaming out of that role because it was a, it felt like every six months was new because we were going to new markets. We were expanding. We were employing people. You know, it, it really was a roller coaster, roller coaster ride and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, from a Britvic point of view, international was separate to the main organization. So I didn't necessarily have the exposure to grow my career to a senior level. So I then I then pitched a new role to the company. And in fact, this is quite an interesting origin story, actually, because I went on a management training course, as, as you often do in big companies, and go and discover yourself and, you know, understand more about what makes you tick. And they had a very simple, you know, for three days I was away. There's only one thing I remembered, but it was quite profound. And I remember the guy put on a, you know, put on a flip chart, two circles. Let me imagine the kind of Venn diagram, but just the two circles, not the three. And he said, write down everything that the company needs and is lacking on, on, in, the, in one circle. Write down everything you are passionate about in the right circle and look for the overlap. Mm-hmm. Where is the business need meets your passion and create something out of that? And I thought... That's so simple. I thought that's incredibly simple. So I basically said, I basically sat there and went, I don't think is as good at innovation as it thinks it is because it, it keeps launching stuff and then forgetting about it. And it ends up this constant like cycle of launch and leave and waste. And I love innovation and, and, and I've learned so much, particularly in my international career, of what it takes to get things started and keep things going and scale up and, and how you need to act differently at different phases. So that was afternoon, this thing. And I got two board members, the CMO and the CCO from Britvic, to breakfast at 8 a.m. on the Monday. <laughs> and I pitched my idea to them, right? Now, the thing is, right, you can imagine this. The energy that I had on the Friday afternoon about I felt unstoppable. And then the cold, dreary, drizzly day, Monday morning, 8 a.m., <laughs> where I bring my flip charts and post-it notes into this room. And I've got two very scary people. And I go, I have an idea. I can solve the company's problems, you know. And I thank them both, you know, Murray and Simon. I thank them both for not throwing me out the room after two minutes and go, what are we paying you for to go on this course for? But they saw through my night, you know, my sort of, you know, lack of polish. And they said, there's something there. And what I, what I pitched them is I said, look, 
PepsiCo is a partner to Britvic. Pepsi owned 10%. Pepsi have got lots of successful brands in other markets. What if, rather than, we had this thing called the co-op, and the co-op was the annual agreement that Britvic and Pepsi get together and they spend about £20 million each launching and promoting and advertising, right? So that's roughly what happens. And I said, look, they're spending three million, I think it's about three million pounds on advertising new brands, non-Pepsi brands, right? Also non-brand Pepsi, I mean, other Pepsi brands. And I said, what if that money was spent creating an innovation unit Mm -hmm. that operated like a startup that had its dedicated sales team, dedicated marketing team? It took, you know, all the way from making it in the factory all the way through to it being on the shelf. And you treated it like its own business. And you have a joint venture, you have a board that sits above it. But basically, you operate it like a startup. What could you achieve if you did it like that? And you spent the money doing that rather than chucking it in the normal system. And to my astonishment, three months later at the board meeting, they all signed off on it. And so I got given six million pounds a year budget. It was a joint, you know, between three million from each. I had a team of 12 and I had a sales team of 40. And these sales team were people that actually went into stores and put things on shelves. You know, it wasn't a head office thing. It was a physically we're going to go in, you know, on the ground and make stuff happen. And so that little team, we started with 7 million turnover. And three years later, it was 50 million turnover. And we launched six mm-hmm. brands in those three years. And we it didn't all work. That doesn't always work. But we gave them the best possible shot you could imagine. But some of them worked like within six months. And some of them didn't work at all. But what we mm. did is we learned how to launch brands effectively. And it's, it's very different to how, you know, big brands are successful. How a small brand is successful is completely different to how a big brand becomes successful, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. I'll touch on that in just a sec. But <clears throat> we haven't actually mentioned, and I'll edit this out and put this earlier in the conversation. But what are Britvic? What do they do? Yeah, so good question about Britvic. So Britvic is the second largest manufacturer of soft drinks in the UK. I, they have around 15% market share. The number one is Coca-Cola with about 30% share. So 30% of all drinks that are sold in the UK come from Coke. 15% come from Britvic. Britvic's particularly well established in the on-trade. So they, they, in fact, they are number one in pubs and hotels and restaurants. And they're number two in take-home being supermarkets and convenience stores. Now, Britvic is is about 50% of its turnover comes from franchise brands. So franchise, the big franchise agreement is PepsiCo. Mm-hmm. So Pepsi, the Britvic is the fourth biggest bottler. They call them bottlers. It's a bit insulting. Everyone hated the word bottler because it sounded like, okay, so all you do is put fizzy brown <laughs> liquid in bottles, right? Of course you do more than that, isn't it? Anyway, the bottler was a bit insulting. But anyway, we used to wind them up about that. Anyway, but Britvic is the fourth largest franchisee or bottler of Pepsi in the world and one of the most successful. And there's a 25-year agreement between the two companies to, to bottle and distribute and market Pepsi brands. That's about half the turnover of Britvic. The other half would be brands like Robinson's, Fruit Shoot, J2O, Tango, R. White's would be the major other brands that you might have heard of. And then the ones I launched while I was there, Lipton Iced Tea, Mountain Dew, Purdy's, Gator, those kind of brands as well. I'm interested in... So you, you came first to Britvic, sort of shoehorning your way into marketing. You sort of ended semi-marketing. You then went to First Drinks and you were brand manager marketing. You were sort of there then. And then by the time you returned to Britvic, you were full on marketer. You've made the transition. Yeah. 
Yeah. Did we were your sights now set at this point on becoming a CMO? Was that what you wanted to get to? Yeah, I, I had a bit of a sort of a bumpy ride to CMO because I was torn. Genuinely, I was torn. That the fork in the road that I felt in my early thirties was: Do I want to be an innovator or do I want to be a CMO? If I want to be a CMO, there are certain boxes I need to tick. So, for example, I need to run big brand above the line campaigns i need to manage media i need to oversee large complicate complex mm. teams right so so the dilemma you know talking to headhunters it's like there are some boxes you need to tick john if you want to become the most senior marketer in an organization and be on the the board i mean people didn't talk about c-suite and cmos back back in that day it's an american thing that's kind of happened since but effectively to get to cmo would be that my, if you cut me in half and, and saw me bleed, I'd be bleeding innovation and startups and scale-ups. That's probably the thing that really like lights me up and makes me excited mm-hmm. and, and gets, gets me going. So I had a bit of a pivot in mid to later in my career, actually, was I then, after having done the, the Britvic innovation brand thing, I then started networking with venture capitalists to try and see if I could get funding to launch my own brand. And in fact, I you know tried to buy some brands and got very close to buying a few brands of my own. Got really close, but it didn't quite happen. So, at one of the venture capital companies, Langholm Capital, then I then did a management buy-in, which is where you actually invest your own money, you buy a small share in a company that they then take over, but you have the opportunity as the company grows to increase your shareholding. And th- there's a lovely multiplier that happens where then if you sell it. You, you can make mm-hmm. a very good return, very good return. So I then spent four years in my sort of dream, which was basically to own something, but be working on innovation and disruption and, and being a challenger brand. Now, that didn't quite work out because the, the, the what happened there was we were incredibly successful. We doubled the business. We quadrupled the profit. We became the fastest growing brand of soft drink in the category. We were innovative. We were very profitable, very successful. But I was a minority shareholder and the venture capital company changed the terms of the shareholder agreement Mm. from what was originally four years to eight years. And the way the deal was structured because they borrowed money to buy the business and the guaranteed return for shareholders, not me, meant that my my value reduced over the eight years rather than increased. I mean, it's quite a detailed accounting thing, but effectively I was being asked to work twice as long and get less out of it at the end of the eight years. It it didn't make sense. So weirdly, you asked me about, you know, my path to CMO. Very oddly, I ended up getting to CMO, but not in the path I thought. Because at this point, my career was set on innovation, private equity, management buy-ins, entrepreneurialism. That's my passion. I then found myself in a very odd situation where I had to leave because I was running out, my personal cash flow had run out because I took a, 50% 50% pay cut to mm-hmm. do the, the job at Purity where I was. And it was meant to be done and dusted in four years. And therefore, I'd run out of all the credit that I could get my hands on. So I needed a job. And then a friend of mine, ironically, somebody who worked at Britvic International, had emigrated to Australia, and he was a CMO at a company called Frucor. Now, Frucor is the number two soft drink company in, in Australia. It's owned by Suntory. And Suntory own Lucasade Ribena, in the UK, which is the number three. After, so you go Coke is number one, Britvic number two, number three is Lucasade, Rabina, Suntory. The two brands that you'll have heard, of course, Lucasade and Rabina, uh, as you know, in the name. And 
Cameron, bless him, basically said to Suntory, this is the guy you want. He knows soft drinks. He's an innovator. He's, he, he's the guy that you need to really shake things up and, and, uh, and, and manage it. So rather weirdly, I ended up becoming a CMO, even though I'd actually chosen the opposite path, which was the innovation startup path. So it's kind of weird how... It, uh, well, the lesson is you can listen to the headhunters and you can tick the box and you can follow the, the theoretical process. Sometimes the real process is more squiggly and a bit off-piste, mm-hmm. but you, you get there in the end. It's funny how things change. So you were going all in on that private equity-backed entrepreneur and making purity as, as big as you want it, but for whatever reason, it's not quite worked out. And then you find yourself as a marketing director, the, the biggest... Um, yeah. What do you call it? A soft drinks company? Their yeah, biggest, soft drink company. Yeah, their soft their drink biggest company. soft drink company in the UK. The absolute giant that is LucasAid, uh, Ribena, Suntory. Yeah. How did you decide to go for that role specifically? Were, were you a bit worried about going into a brand like this? Were you excited to take it on board, having done almost four years basically running the show? Well, I was, I, I, I was very pumped about it, to be honest with you. And I'll tell you why. There was so much good about it because I you know I, I got to work on household name brands I mean most of my career has been innovation I've been the I've always been the challenger right mm-hmm. so I thought this is quite good experience for me to be the dominant number one you know how do you manage a brand at a different point in its life cycle so part of me thought this is a really good learning experience for me I also thought I also loved Suntory the parent company they were very family orientated very long term that lovely yata minahare is their their kind of phrase which is a bit it's a bit like nike go for it you know follow your dreams and passions and so on so there was a really good culture they very much believed in autonomy and entrepreneurialism so they they were very good at that there wasn't really a big international marketing setup it was very local so it was one it was probably if you think about the person that runs pepsi or the person that runs coke in the uk they are pretty hamstrung by the global program, right? They have 80% of what they do is not really dictated by them. It's dictated by Atlanta, you know, and it's decided globally. And they get to go, well, which of these 15 global campaigns am I going to take? You know, it's that. The difference with this role is it's probably the most influential marketing role in soft drinks because it's run locally. So of the 60 million that you get to spend, you get to spend that and you get to decide how it's spent. You get to have complete ownership you're not negotiating with other markets you're not taking the global playbook that comes from america which is how many other businesses operate so the local autonomy mm. the culture the experience it gave me running a big team running a big PL was great and i also felt that what i was going to bring is the entrepreneurial spirit right that's so i was going to bring something and a knowledge of the market that's probably better than anybody you know probably couldn't have picked somebody with the kind of intimate knowledge of the soft drink market, you know, knowing how factories run, knowing how the supply chain works, knowing how innovation is done in soft drinks. So I, I had the intimate knowledge of how to get stuff done that I think a more corporate player would have probably struggled with. So there was a ton about it on paper. I have to say w- was hugely attractive and, and you know, not least having a stable job. Because yeah. honestly, mate, I, I can't tell you how hard it was, but I lived for four years on credit not being able to go on holiday, not being able to do all the things that my family would like to have done and feeling the anxiety of knowing that I was running out of cash personally in two or three months time and I had no options, you know, and that, you know, and even that with some sort of salary was painful. So for a startup that is literally living for the 
I've got to get the paycheck in or I'm not going to carry this on. I felt that. And I'd also put my life savings into it. So Mm -hmm. I had invested emotionally, invested financially, and and it hurt more that losing that job, not losing it because I didn't get fired. I chose to left, but walking away from that hurt in a way that no other job has hurt before because it was a sacrifice to do what I did. So then going to the comfort of a corporate job with a good salary and a bonus was, you know, was nice. It it, it definitely had its perks. Do you leave purity with equity? Or did you give all that up? No, no, no. No, joking. No, not nothing. Because in the shareholder agreement, again, and this is where you have to be, Look, the shareholder agreement that I signed at Purity was was like a book, a thick novel. It was a, a thick document, right, with a lot of things. If I left to a competitor, they had the right to buy my shareholding for a penny. So that's where, you know, you need to go in eyes wide open sometimes these big venture capital agreements because it's designed to lock you into a certain scenario and make sure that all the chips are in the favor of the major investor, not in the favor of the individual. So it, it's a painful learning, but I think I'd, I'd have so much advice to offer anyone listening who's thinking about doing venture capital, private equity, long-term incentive plans. You've got to look, because of course you're excited, right? When you get offered it, you just, all you think about is the multiple, right? I'm there going, I've invested my life savings, but I've got a te- I've got a, te- a 20x actually. I was going to get a 20x return over four years, right? I'm sat there literally thinking about this means retirement, you know, doing what I want, all that. So you, as human nature, we mm. go to the positive, right? But sometimes you have to go to the negative and go, well, hang on, what happens if another company decides to buy it? In the shareholder agreement, I would have to what's called roll over, which is where they would have the option of forcing me to carry my shareholding into a future company, which locks me in for whatever length of time mm-hmm. that company decides. That you know, if I have to leave, and I never expected to leave, they and I'm a bad lever because everyone's a good or a bad lever. There are no good levers. You soon discover, you know, a good lever is you die basically. <laughs> but if you're a if you're a bad lever, and again, they get to decide what a bad and good lever is. They can buy your shareholding for a pound. Bear in mind. This is my life savings we're talking about. My life savings can be handed over to somebody else for a pound. That's that's serious, right? That's really... Now, in the end, I did a deal. And I did a deal that got my saving back, the amount that I put in mm. back, right? But I had to do a deal. And the deal I had to do, basically, I had to commit to another six months to, a hot, to 20 KPIs. And because I was leaving to basically go to the company that was number one on the list of potential acquirers of, of Purity, they saw me as a good asset on the other side of the fence that could be influential at such a time as they wanted to sell. That was the leverage I had, but that was my only leverage. Otherwise, I was on paper walking away from my life savings, having gone down the toilet. Now, at this point, taken a job, LRS. It's a big job, marketing director at one of the most one of the biggest brands, one of the most influential. You say you left Purity to have something that was a bit more regular, comfortable, sustainable for you and your family. What other creature comforts did you get from joining LRS? Was it really <laughs> quite nice? <laughs> I love it. Well, yes, I think the two best creature comforts actually were, firstly, I had a driver. I say I had a driver. We had kind of a shared pool of cars that where I wanted to go anywhere, you know, I could call on the driver to kind of pick me up and take me home. 
And uh, it was a bit embarrassing, actually. I, I'm not one for showing off. Genuinely, I mean, despite having my own podcast, you might assume I am. <laughs> but honestly, you know, I'm genuinely not. And like, we'd go out for a night out. I'd take my team out, we'd do something. And I, I'd say to the driver, can you park around the corner, please? Because I was just so, I felt so awkward about the fact that I was being picked up in a nice kind of Mercedes S-Class. So that was kind of cool. Uh, and then the other thing, actually, was having a PA. My PA, Emma, was just so amazing because i mean i mean well you know this you know how disorganized i am <laughs> so <laughs> having someone like who is just brilliantly organized and, and she'd come around to meetings making sure i didn't talk too long and start chatting to people and miss the next meeting and uh, she'd come around and drop off a pack for my you know l- everything i need to know about who i'm going to meet and what i'm going to be doing and she basically ran my life for me and and she was amazing so I think that they were the two, well, I see that they were the two kind of organizational perks. And then the other thing, of course, you get with any big company working with big brands, with big budgets, is you get to meet some cool people. Probably the best, actually, was Anthony Joshua. Mm. We sponsored him with Lucas Sport. And do you know what? For a guy that knocks people out for a living, he is the nicest person I've met. And it's really odd because he, he is literally like the gentle giant. And the th- do you know what? I'll tell you the thing that really touched me about him actually, because, you, know, you know, we were paying him. We weren't paying him that much money. Actually, it wasn't a huge deal. How we much were, were you him, paying him? I think about thousand a year. He would have been earning millions from other sponsorships. I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'd imagine Under Armour and Bose and, you know, the other kind of people that sponsor him probably, oh, sorry, Beats rather, it wasn't Bose, Beats, probably paid a lot more. But we we got him when he was up and coming. So we spotted him very early. We wanted the very, very early sponsors for him. But he did so much for that fee. I mean, he would... You know, I mean, some celebrities you endorse, you kind of, you know, you get your 15 minutes with them and that's it and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. With him, he's like, yeah, I'll come down and talk to your team. I'll come and, you know, turn up at your event. Yeah, let's stay chatting and have a drink and so on. And the thing that really touched me about him was, um, you know, we didn't necessarily get to know each other that well. But I I probably met him six or seven times at different things we were doing. But every time he remembered who I was. Now, he was meeting hundreds of people and, mm-hmm. you know, there, there were lots of people even within my team that he, you know, he dealt with and had to remember. But, you know, I remember at kind of launch events, he would spot me in the audience, go, John, come up, come and join us in this photo, you know, and this sort of stuff, yeah. you know. And I just thought it was lovely. I mean, he, the thing with him is he knows his brand and he knows his brand is kind of motivational, good guy in a tough world type thing, got a, got a backstory, you know, boy did good, all that sort of thing. And he really knows that. And he works very well, but in a really authentic way. I mean, one of the funniest things, actually, which um, one of my proudest moments, actually, from that job was we we came up with this idea for LucasAid Sport called Made to Move. And the idea of the idea of the kind of advertising was that, you know, as human beings, we're all kind of made to move. And what LucasAid Sport does is it helps you to move so by being a sports drink we wanted to inspire everyone to move more get fitter live healthier lives and so on and dominic who was the creative at gray the ad agency said to me this is going back to about 2016 i think and aj as we called him was going to fight klitschko mm-hmm. no, and it wasn't 2016 it might be 2018 anyway aj was going to fight klitschko at wembley the biggest paid for fight he's ever done Ninety thousand people in wembley it was probably one of the biggest sporting events of that year. And this is back in December. I think the, the match was in, or the fight was in March. And Dominic said to me, listen, we should tell AJ's story. We should tell the story from being born to walking out in Wembley in a two or three minute film. And we should place that film 
in the ad break before he actually walks out mm -hmm. in front of Wembley, in front of millions that are watching. How amazing would it be to take him from, you know, being born to getting into trouble, to trainings, becoming a builder, to boxing and, you know, coming up through the ranks and, and get to where he is today. And it was so cool. And it, I remember I, I signed it off immediately going, this, this is, I'd love to do that. That just sounds really cool. But the reason I'm telling you the story was um, AJ was about to go into lockdown. So he does a training. He goes into kind of an eight to 10 week lockdown period before any fight where he doesn't do any media. He's literally focused on the task in hand. And we were talking to his agent and we said, look, we really want to get him to do this film and he was up for it by the way he was like oh yeah man I, yeah i'd love someone to tell my story and he, he he himself was really up for being involved he said the trouble is the only window that i've got to talk is i'm going to dubai on holiday with my family he said if you can send a couple of people out to join me i'm happy to tell you everything about my <laughs> backstory so so james and and dominic and so james is in the Lugo sport team and Dominic got to fly out to Dubai for the weekend and they joined AJ at a water park where he's hanging out with his, I mean, he's got a big crew around him, as you might imagine. Yeah. And they got to hang out with him. But what was so touching and so lovely is they came back and they said to me, John, the story's not AJ, it's his mum. Mm. And I'm like, oh, really? He said, yeah, he will do anything for his mum. And the relationship, they are so close and that she's brought him up and so on. So actually when we made the film, and if you watch it, it's called Nobody Ever Move Forward Standing Still. If you watch the film, what you'll notice is the, the thing that gets you is actually the relationship with his mum. And that, you know, she kind of, you know, what, look, looked out for him, got him out of jail when he got into trouble, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and he's obviously incredibly proud. And, and I think he lived, I, I don't know for sure, but I think he lived with his mum until quite recently. I think he's moved out now, but it was just so touching. But we would never have... We would never have got that story had he not been so generous with his time and allowed us to kind of interrupt, you know, his holiday to kind of interview him and, and get the background on it. So that just shows, I mean, that's, you know, for someone as famous and as wealthy and as busy and as in demand as him to give up the time he did for us. And we weren't paying him, as I said, that much money, but by the kind of league he's in was amazing, really. So, so that was a massive perk of the job. So, yeah, as well as being kind of chauffeured around every now and then, and being organised, the privilege of meeting some, you know, I mean, as well as AJ, I met the England rugby coach as well. I mean, he was amazing. I mean, he was just, I mean, at that point as well, England had gone, I think, 14 or 15 matches undefeated. I think we were on a, we were maybe ranked number one in the world back when we were, you know, sponsoring the team as well, which is incredible. But some of the insights you get, the pearls of wisdom, you know, the motivation you get from talking to some people that are, absolutely at the top of their global game it is just phenomenal and and you know as, as kind of marketing director at the time I got the honor of kind of interviewing them meeting them you know bringing them into my team getting them to talk and stuff like that so that's pretty cool stuff yeah there's certainly some perks and it already shows how much more high profile the job was at LRS and I guess this was your first time working with a really big budget for marketing and overseeing all of it were you just overseeing one part of lrs one product or was it the whole thing did you ever feel like imposter syndrome when you were going into it how long did it take you to to settle <laughs> yes. in okay. yeah i love that no, there's well it was overseeing everything from a marketing perspective so within my team we had you know we had an in-house production department we called it ted technology entertainment design 
We had the brand management team that sort of ran the everything to do with the brand. We had obviously insight team as well, developing insight and you know guiding us on that sense. So so yeah, it was everything to do with the brand strategy, execution, marketing in its entirety. I mean, to give you a sense, the budget every year was about fifty million pounds. So that 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 puts you in the kind of big league of spenders which means that from an agency point of view they take you very seriously you're a high profile account to to kind of win so you, you tend to get the best service from from agencies possible which is good and the imposter syndrome is interesting because i guess as a person i've always been a risk taker and i've always backed myself but it doesn't mean i don't have a little bit of imposter syndrome going oh am i really doing this <laughs> you know sort of thing and i think that the bit uh, and we'll maybe go on to talk about this later when we get on to being fired. But the, the challenges for me were not the marketing at all, actually, because what you learn working in smaller businesses is you learn marketing 101. You learn marketing at the front line, at the coalface kind of thing. It equips you incredibly well. Actually, I'll tell you a little story that might illustrate it might illustrate the difference mm-hmm. because um, we were launching a new water brand and uh, I was huddled around at the, the table with my team and they had to update the exec team with how this water launch, the water brand launch was going. Now, the biggest retailer of bottled water on the go is WH Smith's travel stores. You know, the ones you get at the train station yeah. and so on when you're traveling around. They sell an incredible amount of water, absolutely unbelievable amount of water. Something like 50% of all the drinks they sell are just plain water. So winning a contract like that is you know can make your business and um i'd only just started and you know the the team were debating and they were saying we're on track except for one thing we haven't yet confirmed with the buyer at wh smith whether this water brand is going to be listed and that will literally make or break whether we're going to hit our numbers or not anyway i said oh give me 30 seconds well i phoned the buyer at wh smith because i knew the buyer because in my previous job at purity as marketing director i had to know every single customer every buyer everyone who makes decisions i, I you know I, I did a lot of the deals myself and literally the team were looking at me going has the marketing director just phoned the buyer he knows the how the hell does this happen and they were just like completely gobsmacked and got straight through to the buyer and uh, said you know i won't mention his name just you know just to keep the uh, keep the innocent and all that sort of thing but I said, um, hey, yeah, hey, hey, you know, because I'd literally spent the last five years dealing with this guy who was absolutely wonderful yeah. and we had a great relationship. But they couldn't believe that someone in my position would know something as specific as the, the name of the buyer and have a relationship with the buyer at WH Smiths. And that's the difference between being in a small business where you have to be on everything and on every detail and every relationship in a big business where, you know, you play a role but you're not expected to know the details. So in a way, I believe that my ability to understand how things really happen and what goes on at the front line was my superpower in that job because I didn't take any nonsense from the factory, for example, because I knew exactly how you made a bottle of drink. You know, you know having worked in a factory for four years at Purity, mm-hmm. I, I probably knew as much about making a bottle of juice or whatever as anybody else around the table. So, you know, so... Actually, I think that'd be one advice I give anybody is don't underestimate what you learn in a small business about how business actually works, because the bigger the company gets, the more it become, the more you become detached from reality and you do become detached from reality. And so I held on to that sort of essence of knowing how things actually work and you can't pull the wool over my eyes, (laughs) you sort of thing. So, and I think for a time that went down well, actually, I know I got a lot of feedback from people going, 
John, it feels like you really understand my job. You know what it is I'm doing. And of course, I had an empathy for my team and what they're going through in a way that another CMO or marketing director may not have done because they were too used to being all, you know, very important. How did you find going into a bigger company and having less, uh, well, there being more bureaucracy and more holes to jump through to get anything done? Because I'm guessing with Purity and Britvic, you could have influence on things and not have to go through as many stakeholders. Um, I suppose Britvic probably, but LRS, I'm guessing, is way more bureaucratic in that sense. And like, was it at the start when you first joined, you as when anyone starts a new job you've got a lot of energy enthusiasm you want to make things happen you want to change things but did that over time start to go away and you lost enthusiasm as you would in that honeymoon period yeah I mean that that happens without question and I think the reason it happens is not necessarily a bad reason but that there's an ob there's a natural so we've all got limited time right so what happens? So when I, as marketing director at LRS, when I'm prioritising between very big things, whereas before I'd be prioritising against relatively small things, kind of thing, but I'd still be able to do a lot of the small things. Whereas in a job like that, you know, it, 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 the struggle I had was letting go of doing a lot of stuff I knew I wanted to do and should be done, but just couldn't because there were some bigger things. I mean, we'll, we'll probably get on to talk about it, like the sugar tax and stuff like that. But there were such major significant you know multi-million pound impact things going on that I had to focus on that it did mean I wasn't able to maybe spend the time doing some of the frontline stuff and some of the innovative stuff that I would want to do and that was a tough learning you know it really was you know it's hard and you do feel like you're letting go of the controls and I think one of the things I learned is that the importance of the team because you have to have a team that you trust that are going to do the kind of things that you would want to do. And I can't tell you how important hiring the right kind of people and, and having the right kind of team culture is. And it's probably my biggest regret, actually, is I never won the team in terms of I never quite had the culture in the way that I wanted, the, the level of loyalty, the level of trust and the level of kind of we're in this together and we were going to do it. And, and you know, I, I, I got close at the end, but didn't quite. I, looking back, I would have, my mistake was probably thinking that I could answer all the questions, which you feel like when you come from a small business, you, I know the answer, I know the answer. And I did, you know, I was like, literally any big question, I've got the answer, right, sort of thing, because you do. But actually what you need to do is you need to bring other people into the team that also know the answer and can do it for you. So your job is to lead, your, your job is not to find the solution and uh, necessarily, you know, do, be the, do the answer sort of thing. And that, that, that's a big lesson when you're making that jump. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And what what are some of your the proudest work you did with that? So what was your budget when you were at LRS and how, how did you then spend that budget and what were your favorite campaigns over that time? Yeah, depending on how you define the budget, it was between 50 million, uh, depending on whether you included the trade bit of the spend or not. Now of that, you're probably looking about half of it would be discretionary. So a lot of it is bound up in annual data agreements, you know, retainers, sponsorships, the kind of thing that actually you can't necessarily change very quickly. And probably about half of it would be pure discretion where you can go, actually, we can decide what we do tomorrow. You know, it, it's all in our gift. So you have to play with what the chips you've got, I'd say. 
But listen, there, there were probably there were probably three actually campaigns that we did. Well, there's lots actually. I mean, uh, although I was only there two years, there was an, there was an incredible amount of work and that we did that we got through in a short space of time, mm. which I was super proud of. I mean, you know, linking back to my system one job, actually, one of the one of the uh, fun things was uh, on Ribena actually because we were getting close to sugar tax coming in. Ribena had to be reformulated. And that was a very tricky moment because Ribena is one of the best tasting drinks. Scientifically, it's one of the best tasting drinks on the market. So if you do any blind taste tests, do the panels, it will score very high. Now, the idea that you might change that formulation is incredibly sensitive because, <laughs> you know, just pe- people just hearing you've changed it is enough to kind of throw, you know, throw, get the, the toys thrown out of the pram and get a backlash going because it is, you know, you know, we've all grown up with it. It's, you know, it's been in the market 70, 80 years and so on. And, and we were going to develop a new TV campaign. Actually, we changed our minds at the last minute and instead tested the previous outdoor <laughs> campaign, which was called It's So Ribenary, Right. Because what we wanted to do was exaggerate the benefit of taste. And very often, rather than going, look, we're now half the sugar. Now, the problem with doing that is, is when you tell someone it's now half the sugar, they think it's half the taste as well. Yeah. And so what we did is we did the opposite. We actually went out and reminded everybody how ribenary ribena is by exaggerating the berries and the sunshine and the juice and the bottles and all the glorious things. And uh, this is when I just started working System 1, actually. We, we popped the outdoor into test, and it came out with the highest score System 1 have ever seen <laughs> on a piece of outdoor, which is amazing. And the other thing as well, and this is a lesson in, you know, anyone who's read Byron Sharp would, you know, will, will understand this. The Ribena Berry was the fifth most recognizable brand asset, right? So it, 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 so, so many people associate the, the black currant with Ribena that actually it's become an incredibly powerful asset. So just showing the berries brings to mind for people the great taste of Ribena. So it's weird because I know, um, funnily enough, the team actually were a bit upset that we weren't going to do this new TV campaign. And I said, you know what, this is brilliant. And let me tell you why it's brilliant. Because actually, you can go to every customer in the country and say, we have got guaranteed the best ad campaign this year, (laughs) right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they're going to go, well, how do you know that? Because it's the same one that was last year and it was last year's best campaign. And rather than spend, you know, X number of pounds on the new one, we're going to put that money into making the existing one better. Now, this is a lesson that I think because so many people, you know, are new in marketing, they're early in their career, they want to make a new thing, right? And because the annual planning cycle is every year, the temptation is always, I want to make something new. But people forget that something old might but might just be the best new thing you could ever do. Yeah. So that was a kind of cool thing. But John, we see this all the time. Like every year there's new ads coming out from brands, even if they're the one previously worked really well. We see this with the, the system yeah. one data. So why is it? I like what, what do you do then each year? Do you just double down on yeah. doing something? Because otherwise, how, how do you spend your time? It's a it's an inbuilt flaw of the marketing system, yeah. and there are, it, honestly, it is. It's one of it's one of the biggest uh, problems that marketing has at the moment. The, the listen, the problem is this, right? So the first thing is the annual planning cycle. Yeah. So every company has it, right? You set your budgets, and the the way the budgets are set is is completely crazy because what tends to happen is the budget is set based on what you did last year. So I don't know, take Ribena. Ribena's budget was I think million or something like that. So what happens is the brand team go, let's start with million. And I'd go, why? Let's start with nothing. Like, come to me with a really good idea 
and bid for the money and I might give you 20 million if the idea is good enough. So, you know, so the first thing is everyone sets their budget on what they did last year. And the second thing is that the agency that you're employing, they make their money by making new things, right? So you've got this weird incentive from the ad agency where they've actually got an incentive to criticize their own work, which is mental when you think about it. But you see, so you do annual planning, you, you get the same budget roughly as you got last year. You then write a brief and your brief is do what you did last year, but let's make it a bit better or let's kind of appeal to this person rather than that person, whatever it might be. And you go to the agency and they have got an incentive to tell you that last year's campaign was good, but they can do better. <laughs> and this is where the whole agency thing's flawed. I remember speaking to Gray and they actually confessed to me. They said, John, we aren't incentivized to create you a five star ad. And I'm like, really? I said, yeah. I said, think about it, right? If we make you a five-star ad, you'll just keep running it because why wouldn't you? And I said, mate, the problem you're not getting is if you do a five-star ad, right, I'll tell you what then happens, right? A, I love you forever, right? So your contract's not in any threat, right? But B, I bring all the other brands in my portfolio over to the people that know how to make five-star ads. And C, I would pay you what you would have earned twice the following year because I would be so successful that actually I would cut you into whatever upside and so you just have to talk to me about you know and then you'd spend no time but you'd be making all this commission you know and actually we'd all win together so it's just about the nature of the conversation but the the agency model is so broken because it's based on hours spent mm. hourly rates the amount they can charge and of course that their their CFO are going well last year LRS spent half a million how do we get that to seven fifty or to a million and and that they're only thinking short term and that's a, it, it's a broken thing about the whole industry in fact mm -hmm. that whole behaviour and uh, we've been speaking about five star ads and system one and we've been doing this for ages so it's we inherently know it but people that listening to the podcast might not know what a five-star ad is who system one yeah, are good was system one and the type of testing you used at other brands did you bring it into lucasave were they already using it yeah well there's a really interesting story actually to how system one came about for lrs which i, th I think will touch on the pain that i went through <laughs> in this role so years ago and, and in fact you know about 10 years ago i met john kieran the founder we were both actually lecturers on a daimler benz a course which was <laughs> kind of strange yeah. but I was I because of my Britvic experience I was hired by Ashridge Business School to do a, a course on how to innovate in a large organization and it was part of the Daimler-Benz annual management program uh, director's program I think it was that they used to run each year and I met John and I remember John talking about how he used behavioral science and particularly the understanding of feelings to predict action and that what he had created with the team at System One was an ability to predict how advertising was going to work before it went on air. Now, I'd remember, I, you know, I'd probably had a bit of wine and cheese with him many years ago where he explained <laughs> all this to me. And it was kind of in my distant memory lodged as the, oh, he's a good guy. And I seem to remember him telling me about this. Anyway, then the biggest probably, or certainly in the top three biggest personal challenges I've ever had in my career was when we had to relaunch LucasAid Energy because in response to the sugar tax, we'd made a decision as a team to go all in on sugar reduction and get the sugar levels down to below the five grams threshold the government were trying to get every soft drink manufacturer down mm -hmm. to to avoid having to pay the soft drink industry levy, which the levy, to put it into context, LRS makes £80 million a year profit. The levy, had we not reformulated, was £90 million a year. So... <laughs> It would be catastrophic, yeah. right? I mean, you know, absolutely catastrophic. Now, we had a big debate between do we keep a couple of lines as full sugar, the classics, you know, for diabetics and people like that, or do we go all in? 
And we made the decision to go all in. It turned out to be perhaps the wrong one. We'll get onto that. But anyway, when, when we did reformulate, we got it badly wrong. And it's not that the formula... Well, there were two things that went wrong, right? Well, actually a lot of things went wrong, but the, the two major things, right? The first thing is the formulation that we had tested with consumers and had signed off scored very well. So we managed to get a parity match for the new taste with lower sugar to the old one, and, and very few people could tell the difference. However, by the time it went through the R&D process and the checks and, and was actually made in the factory, the final thing that came off the production line was nowhere near what we'd signed off. Now, there was a there was quite a it took months for us to work out what went wrong. And actually what we then what we discovered after the event was um, that within when you manufacture something on a production line, you have a tolerance level. So what so there's a thing called the thing called bricks, which is the kind of raw compound that, that the drink's made from. And you know, you add the water and mix it and carbonate it and so on. But because old factory lines are quite unreliable, they give you like a bandwidth, if you imagine, like, you know, in terms of the mixture, you know, mm-hmm. you can be plus or minus a certain number of bricks, it's called, which is the concentration of kind of sugar in, in, in the compounds. Now, that would have been fine with natural sugar, but we were using intense artificial sweeteners to replace the sugar. Mm-hmm. And the, the variability, the, the tolerance level at the top or bottom of the level would completely change the taste profile. Now, because the uh, factory were looking for efficiency gains, they consciously operated at the the minimum spec because they could extend the production line for production run for another 5% to get more yields by basically effectively mixing it to a slightly lower concentration level than we expected. And this was sort of acceptable in the old way of doing things where actually because you're using natural sugar, you couldn't really tell the difference in terms of your taste. But because we had put sweeteners in, running it in that way was very obvious and had a huge impact. Yeah. So, so what we actually put to market was not what we signed off. Mm. Now, you could go, that's my fault for not understanding that bit of technicality. It took me six months of investigation to finally understand that's the case. Second problem is this, and this is a real lesson actually. People st- stopped buying Lucasade not because they'd tried it, because they had heard from other people that it didn't taste good. And 70% of people that stopped buying because a friend or I read on social media or I heard, mm. they, they heard that it didn't taste good. And therefore, in their heads, they stopped buying simply because they'd heard about it. So a huge social media backlash that had been generated by the news of the change. Again, the news of the change, not the actual product. So the actual number of people that tried it and didn't like it, even though it wasn't as good as it should have been, it was actually the news that we had changed and hearing about the change. And in fact, I reread, and I should have read this before, the Coke classic, you know, the new yeah. Coke back from the in late 1980s, right? There was a fascinating article which was called The Wrong Question. And what the article said is when Coke researched it they asked everyone what do you think of this formulation and everyone said yeah it's great it's lovely it's good it's as good as the existing one right and coke went we've done it right the question they should have asked is how would you feel if we stopped selling regular coke and gave you this instead because if you ask people i'm if you tell people i'm going to take your choice away and i'm going to take what you know and love even though you think it tastes as good then it, we then asked that question on LucasAid Energy and it predicted a 20% drop in our sales. And the actual drop in our sales was 21. So th- th- I only found this out after retrospectively then asking the right question. 
about this. But anyway, to come back to, I think the question, sorry, I've gone off on a tangent here about how did I end up using system one? I think was the question yeah. you originally asked. So that context is super important because the CEO of LRS said to me, this is a market, he said to me this, which really, you know, profoundly struck me actually. He said to me, John, this is a marketing problem. It requires a marketing solution and you have eight weeks to fundamentally relaunch LucasAid completely. Mm -hmm. Like proposition, packaging, advertising, sampling, in-store. He said, you've got eight weeks. What was going through your head at this point? Well, what's going through my head was I'm already fired, honestly, mm. was what's going through my head. I mean, honestly, because what I discovered about a large organization is people are looking for someone to blame, right? Now, you could go, I could say, hand on heart, hang on a minute, the factory have not manufactured what I signed off. And that would be true. But the fact, but but because we didn't want the factory kind of throwing their toys out and feeling like they're being criticised, they were kind of protected from criticism. So the CEO, I remember, I remember saying publicly, actually in front of everyone at the town hall, he said, this is a marketing problem and it will require a marketing solution. Mm -hmm. So from that point on, I knew I was either fired or on the hook for, you know, for getting us out of this. So the pressure was enormous. And we another interesting learning, we started by involving everybody in the solution and it very quickly ground to a halt. So what I did then is I said, I, I picked six or eight people, I can't remember, but, but that kind of number. And I said, we are the mission control team and we are going to be the team to fix this. And we're going to go off site. We're going to like cancel everything. We're going to get under the skin of the data. We're going to meet our customers. We're going to work hand in glove with our media PR ad agency. And we're going to, we're literally going to spend the next eight weeks fundamentally fixing this thing. Now, I remember the CEO said to me, I want you to prove to me that this new... Oh, by the way, we came up with what I think was one of the most wonderful ideas ever that I've come up with from an advertising perspective, right? And it was it, I thought it was genius from the creatives at Grey because we, we had been doing this kind of slightly soft find your flow campaign, which is the feeling you get, you know, when you're kind of everything's just falling into place, right? Which, which comes from drinking energy. But actually what we realized is a lot of people are drinking LucasAid Energy because they need the boost, right? You know, the day after the night before, or they're going into an interview or they're feeling unwell. And we'd lost some of the energy credentials. And going back to, if you think the energy, if you think the sugar's lower, you think it's not going to give you the same boost. So what we decided to do is let's double down on what actually people want from the drink, which is I want the energy boost. So the idea they came up with was this idea of energy beats everything. It doesn't matter how talented you are. It doesn't matter the cards you get played. If you don't have energy, you can achieve nothing. You know, so no one ever achieved anything spectacular without energy. And so we were going to be the, you know, the fuel for that energy. So I, I, I thought, wow, we've really cracked this. But anyway, there was a budget of 25 million pounds. Bear in mind that because of the shock to sales, nobody was getting a bonus. We were way off target. You know, it was a crisis. It was a crisis to the extent that it was mentioned in Suntory's holding company's statement to the Japanese stock market. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how bad this, that's how high profile, this is why I knew I was going to get fired, right? Because basically, you know, we were, we were literally the reason why they hadn't, you know, hadn't necessarily delivered the numbers on the Japanese stock market. So it, it was about as high profile as you, as you could ever want to get, you know, not that you want to get that high profile. And anyway, I remember the moment where the CEO said to me, I want you to guarantee this campaign before we sign off the 25 million pound budget. And I'm like, hey, mate, 
you and I are both marketers, we know nothing in marketing is guaranteed. And I'm like, this is an impossible question, right? You're giving me a couple of days to guarantee this is going to work before it goes live. Then I remembered my wine and cheese meeting with John <laughs> Kieran. <laughs> right. Because at the time we were working with um, Millwood Brown and doing all our pre-testing with Millwood Brown. And Millwood Brown were taking about two weeks and typically giving us something very complicated as a, as a debrief. And I'm like, I ain't got two weeks. I need a better solution. And anyway, I phoned John up. I said, listen, mate, yeah, we, we'd sort of developed a friendship at this point. So I, I trusted him. And I said, listen, mate, I've got a problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he could not have been more excited, right? He said, this is what we do, John. He said, this is the moment that we've created everything we've created to help, you know? We want CMOs like you. We want to be able to answer your toughest creative questions very quickly. And we want to be able to predict what's actually going to happen. And we've got the evidence. Anyway, so he didn't really, you know, so far from feeling my pain, he was kind of sensing the opportunity to kind of, anyway. So a couple of, the, so I showed him the creative, we got it tested, but what the masterstroke, and it really was a masterstroke was rather than me present it, I said, John, will you come in and spend an hour and a half with our exec? And can you take them through the behavioral science, how you test advertising, how you predict what's going to work and so on. And it was one of the best meetings I've ever been to because A, the pressure was off me, and but they really got it. And suddenly everybody in the room felt like they had a stake in my new campaign. They go, John, energy beats everything. I love this campaign. This is going to be the best thing. And the CFO actually said, I remember we, we had to cut loads of costs because we you know our sales had gone down, as I said, by 20%. We had to cut costs. And I remember the CFO, I've always quoted this back as well. He said, we will cut every cost before we cut John's advertising campaign, <laughs> because I know that's going to work because System 1 tell me. And I'm just like, there it is. That is why System 1 was so useful to me. So it was brilliant. And in fact, um, sadly, I got fired before <laughs> I could enjoy seeing the results. But Stephen, who was my head of marketing, absolutely phenomenal marketer, hugely talented guy. He, bless him, after I got fired, he sent me a little text to go, John, I, I know this is going to be bittersweet, but we've just grown 12% in the 12 weeks <laughs> after you got fired and it's all down to the campaign. So he said, I hope that's some consolation to you. <laughs> so John, talk, talk me through that. How did you end up getting fired? And actually take me back to before then, was it, were things at LRS getting a little bit choppy? Like, when did you start to think things aren't going so well? Could you see it on the horizon? And then what happened? Yeah, well, look, I think it's, well, there's, there's a number of bits. I think in terms of my fit to the culture, I mean, I mean, there's a few things. I think I probably didn't play the game mm -hmm. in the way the game needed to be played. And one thing I learned is that it's not actually about real results. It's about optics in big companies. And it's about how you're perceived, not the reality. So there's so many things I'm proud of in terms of marketing. I mean, I had the second highest employee opinion survey of any department in Suntory. We're in the European group. I mean, we ranked, I think, our second to Ireland. And Ireland had a bit of an advantage because, you know, they had lots of autonomy and they're all very positive people anyway. But in the UK, I had the number one rated department. I had the lowest rate of churn. So at a team of, I can't remember, a team of 55, whatever, only four people left. And all those four people got promotions and went on to bigger things, you know. So there was a lot of things that worked very well. So we got, you know, system one scores. We got, you know, campaigns on every brand that delivered big results. What I realized is actually those things don't matter. And it, it pains me to say that. And it, it, it's a bit of heartache because I think 
I worked so hard with the team to deliver what the business needed us to deliver through very tough circumstances. But that's not the game. The game was something serious has gone wrong with sugar tax. You know, uh, the, lots of people will have lost their short-term bonus. The long-term bonus would be in question as well. There's reputational damage up to even the sort of Japanese company in Suntory. And people then, when things go wrong, people look to distance themselves from the scene of the crime. And so what you get is you suddenly literally, it's a bit like having friends. And then the moment this happens, boom, suddenly everyone is positioning themselves against you. So the factory are going, oh, we made it to spec. Look, our spec is absolutely perfect. You know, the sales director is going, oh, look, you know, we've been promoting this in the way we normally promote it, but the sales are down 20%. So it's a brand problem. You know, R&D will be going, well, look, we came up with a great formulation. So it's not our fault sort of thing. So what happens is the old phrase, success as many fathers but failure is an orphan. And that's exactly what happened in this situation. So the moment it went wrong, everybody circles around and goes, ah, not, not on our watch. And the thing with marketing is you're responsible for everything. You can be responsible for everything. So this is why the phrase that haunted me was, this is a marketing problem. You know, this was a year before I got fired. This is when, you know, when we did the relaunch. I knew from that moment that basically, you know, people above you, people below you, people around you are protecting their own careers, mm -hmm. reputations, positions, right? They're incentivized to do it. They won't tell you, they'll, they'll be nice to your face, but you know there are conversations going on, there are positions being played. So from that point on, I thought uh, for my own reputation and my own sort of self-worth, I worked incredibly hard on delivering the results. I'll tell you what, this is it's a really interesting one. So as an executive, we had, I think, 50 KPIs for the following financial year, of which 30, I think I'm right, this is roughly the balance, 30 of them were marketing. So yeah. we were a very marketing-led organization, right? So let's say there are 30 KPIs. I got fired in June, and in the quarterly review where the great and the good from Japan come over and do a big review, we had traffic light system for each of the KPIs. I presented a, a complete set of green numbers in terms of what we'd agreed in the plan, what we'd set as targets, I had in the team, and we front-loaded the plan on purpose, actually, because we wanted to have a really good start to the year to try and make up for the horrors of the previous one. Mm -hmm. And we were really focused. And actually, from you know, I probably never delivered a better set of results in my life in terms of, you know, it, it, it's hard often, you know, if you've got a lot of KPIs, you often have to trade them off, don't you? Yeah. But in this case, actually, the whole team had delivered and we had worked really closely with sales and we delivered some spectacular results. And that, in a way, I did... I think to prove to myself that it's the politics because I, I because then I, I didn't want to be able to get fired on a well you haven't done what we've asked you to John do you know what I mean so uh, that was probably just me you know a bit of self-preservation and pride <laughs> you know at mm -hmm. the end of the day so but look, look this, but I was going to say this is a top tip for anybody that's making those decisions between small and large companies now I'm not saying this is true of every large company and actually if I'm honest Britvic was far less political than LRS far less actually, because there were politics and, you know, I got my fingers burnt sometimes. But I think the level of politics on the scale, but the bigger the company, the more it is about playing the game of perception, not playing the game of reality. And I personally hate that. And I personally think it is the wrong behavior. And, you know, it should be about Let's understand the truth. What's really going on? Are we fixing the right things? Are we focused in the right places? Are we doing the right thing and reward good work? I think so. So why did you get fired? 
Well, I got I basically got fired because of the sugar tax. Uh, well, because of the well, what I think happened is I know I was going to get fired fairly soon after the event. But I've seen this happen a number of times, right? So, so often you see in situations, you think, surely they should have fired them, that person straight away. But what happens is quite interesting that you keep them in position to fix the problem while you find a replacement in the background, right? And while you line up your options. I've seen that quite a lot in my career, actually. You look and go, surely that person's going to get fired. Why aren't they? And then six or nine months later, oh, they are gone. But then, of course, by that point, the, the issues are fixed. The person that, you know, because actually there's no one better than me to fix the issues, really, because I, I knew what was going on and I understood it and so on. So basically they waited, you know, until the business was actually in a good position before they fired the bullet. And it would have been, I, I don't know for sure. I, I don't know for sure. I know my boss did say I, I didn't play the internal uh, politics well enough, but I think he would have been under pressure from the Japanese owners to make some tough decisions and be shown to be tough on the situation ironically he got promoted actually so there you go <laughs> what what ended up happening with the the formulation because doesn't Lucas aid have sugar in it now because i know my mum my mum's diabetic and she still has it i know well listen top tips for diabetic actually i should say this um it so one of the reasons Lucas aid original is used by diabetics is diabetics know exactly how much leucosate to drink when they're having a hypo mm. and one of the reasons why it's so popular is that every shop has got a bottle of leucosate in it so you kind of go if i'm out and about and i need one quickly i know where to go and i know how much to drink yeah the the glucose level was halved so basically a diabetic would need to drink twice the amount that they're used to drinking to get the same hit now that's a problem that's a really big mm -hmm. problem so we actually one of the big engagements i did with michelle who ran corporate communications was actually heavily engaging with all the diabetics to to re-educate them on how much lucas a to drink but i think what happened is we lost the biggest amount of our buyers by because coke regular didn't reformulate and coke regular was the other drink that diabetics would typically use as a ubiquitous kind of sugar hit so what we found is we found a massive switching away from Lucasade into Coke simply for that purpose because it was reliable. You know, they, they wouldn't get confused between the old one and the new one and how much to drink versus, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a big hit. If I, I did, I did put a proposal actually, which didn't end up happening, which was what we should have done is kept a classic range. So kept a, an original yeah, version, yeah, yeah. which was clearly marked up as the original formulation so anybody any and do it for diabetics right and do it because we know that there are people that actually need this and use this but the issue is lrs had made such a big noise about we are never going to make a high sugar product again that was impossible to tolerate and in fact that i was that was about a week before i got fired was i was putting forward the case to go maybe we should actually think about the fact that we've learned something here which is diabetic behavior and the right thing to do is actually to have a limited line of the original formulation but do it for the right reasons but that 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 would have hurt reputationally i think and there was too much ego at stake at this point that makes sense and so you you've now uh, been fired unfortunately from one of the, the biggest jobs you've had. What was going through your mind then? What did you do after? Did you have another job lined up? Well, I tell you what, I I I, I had actually been approached by headhunters about Brewdog actually at the same time as this was happening. So part of me was like, okay, you know, stars aligning and all that sort of thing. However, the Brewdog mm. thing took a, a few months to, to to come off. Listen, I mean, being fired is one of those horrible things, and I tell you what, it. 
the, the, the next few months restored my belief in humanity in, in quite a magical way. I, I, I went and had lunch with somebody who's, whose wife, I think, had been in a similar situation. And he said something to me. He said, look, she's very organized. And what she decided to do is have a 100-day plan. And she wanted to meet 100 people in 100 days. And I'm like, wow, that's very organized. <laughs> But I just thought, well, look, you know, I make a plan for brands. Why don't I make a plan for John Evans Incorporated sort of thing? So I thought, yeah, I'll give this a go. So I created this spreadsheet and I thought, I'm going to create, I'm going to meet 100 people in 100 days. And then I had another thought as well, which someone else, I think someone must have put this idea in my mind. Everyone I meet, I'm going to say, could you, would you mind giving me the names of three people that you think I should talk to as a result of this conversation? And you know what I genuinely kind of made me tingle down the back of my spine was, when you leave the corporate mothership and you're working with start startups, founders, venture capital, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of world, everybody helps everybody. There isn't this idea that, oh, we're competitors because we do, we do similar yeah. things. Like, no, John, no, you know, you know, you can come help me out with this thing I'm doing over here and I'll go and shoot. I'm like, but we're competitors, aren't we? And I say, like, no, of course we're not, you know. And and there was something truly heartwarming about people's generosity. And I got meetings with loads of people. And, you know, I got in, I got to meet some fascinating people, some very wealthy people. And I mean, you, you know, I, I got to meet some venture capital companies. And actually, one of the things I learned through that was, you know, people will back people, even if they haven't got the idea fully formed. And a lot of people said to me, look, John, you've got so much great experience. We love your energy. We love what you're about. Even if you've not fully worked this thing out, we, we back you because you're the kind of person that actually we could see being successful. And I'm like, really? You know, Because in my head, in a big corporate company, you've got to have all your I's dotted mm-hmm. and T's crossed and you've got to have a solid business case. You've got to do months of research and you've got to, it's got to be absolutely bulletproof before anyone will give you the money. But actually in startup land, the understanding is, you know, you've got to be out there quick. You've got to prove the concept. We'll, if the person's got the right, you know, got the right thing about them, we'll back them. So I had wonderful conversations and, and genuinely, I went from feeling a bit depressed and angry at the situation in NRS and hurt to actually feeling a bit of a lease, a new lease of life, actually. Yeah, well, you're going back to the, the things we discussed earlier in, in the episode about you've always loved the innovation, startup, entrepreneurship. You've been deprived of that all the time you're at LRS and it was a lot of politics and the stuff you just weren't as interested in. But in these 100 yeah. days, you're speaking to people about the stuff that you genuinely enjoy, genuinely excited about. And that sort of... I guess, built up more of your energy. Did you do the 100 days? Did you meet 100 people? I got to day 67. So I did 67 meetings in 67 days. And on the 67th, on the 67th day, I got an offer from BrewDog. So Tell me more. It, yeah, I know. It, 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 and in, in a way, maybe I wish I hadn't. Obviously, looking back, hindsight's a great thing. Look, I'm a big BrewDog fanboy. So as somebody that loves innovation challenges, I look at their, their story and I'm just like, what they've done, James and Martin, is truly spectacular they've taken one of the biggest you know monopolistic type markets which is the beer market with a completely tied up supply chain and route to market you know that yeah you know, i mean the, the the companies that run beer are just massive mm-hmm. you know you know monoliths sort of thing and they've come in with a really fresh kind of perspective on beer in terms of craft beer obviously borrowed from the u.s i mean once you go out to the u.s you realize that the whole playbook is borrowed from there but and but they've done it with such you know such personality such a good challenge they've created their own pr they've done some incredible things on limited budgets and they've 
you know, one of the most successful crowd fundraisers in history. In fact, they I think they held for a long time the record for the greatest crowd fundraiser of, of anyone in the world. So huge fanboy, I guess, of what they did. And actually, I, so I I'd applied for the CMO role, which is a new role that James had created and um, was in this weird position, which is a bit odd to say, but I almost turned it down because I was having so much fun in my 100 days. Honestly, right, literally, I was meeting such cool people and I thought maybe this is my moment, Mm -hmm. not me being number two to James Watt moment type thing. But then, and look, I I hate to say this, and I I know people will listen go, damn it, come on, John, back yourself, man. You need to have a salary. And and, and this was the problem, right? Because, okay, I'm at a different stage of life. You know, you've got your mortgage and everything else and there's you do sit there and go I have a responsibility to my family to earn a certain amount of money and make sure that they're okay and that sort of and also James made a very compelling case Mm. to join as well very compelling case and wrote me a long email about why I should join so so I did so that was my that takes me to getting fired a second time (laughs) yeah so uh, Brewdog it seems like uh, a real big dream challenge this is a kind of a startup brand they've done interesting marketing before why why was it they wanted Mm. to or james uh, the founder wanted to hire a cmo at this point yeah no it's really simple actually so the the brewdog plan is to float on the stock market so there's a private investment company called tsg they bought 22 percent of brewdog Mm. about three years ago now and any private equity company looking for a big return, they're very impatient. They have very high expectations for what they expect. They will have put a business plan together that would have said what James needs to do is, perfect. well, I say professionalized, quote unquote, but basically bring in a level of senior management that would then allow it to behave and operate like a potential PLC company. Yeah. Okay? And then from James's point of view, also, there's the obvious thing of he can no longer be as intimately, a bit like the challenge I had at LRS, actually which is, you know, I knew exactly what had to be done at the coalface and I found it hard to let go and let other people do that. He's got the same challenge, which is for him to be more successful. You know, he has got to delegate and got to start trusting people to take on responsibility for him because he just can't be over everything in the way that he was, you know, 10 years ago when they started out sort of thing. So he knew that. So he had a, he had a you know, the TSG flotation plan, bring in professional management. I think he was hiring about 10 or so roles at a time, which were across the business, all designed to bring in external capability. And he said to me, he said, look, John, you know what might happen next, right? Because you've been CMO on LucasAge, you've got a good understanding of what a more mature brand does as well as a startup. And he said, I can't think of anyone better to bridge the gap between the plucky startup, the challenger and the sort of established yeah. brand. So that was very much the brief, actually, which kind of made sense. So what was your plan on day one when you were in, in there and talk me through that first sort of week at BrewDog? Full of energy, excited? Yeah. Oh, amazing. Oh, it's so cool. I mean, the first thing they do at BrewDog is they give you beer training, right? <laughs> Everybody. I mean, honestly, you have to go and work the bar right, which I loved, right, I really enjoyed that. You have to get to know the brewing process and you have to pass a Cicero, this, oh, I can't put this now, but it's basically a certified beer server status sort of thing. You know, I mean, James is a master Cicerone, which is kind of like master of wine, of which there are 14 in the entire world. So he's kind of got to sort of Jedi level status on that. But everyone in the company has to pass the basic entry test. So it's like going back to school, mm-hmm. you know, you have to do this, this kind of proper sit down exam. I mean, I got 96% in 
it. So I'll, I'll sorry, please actually, it did do really well. But it was a lot, you know, it's a real challenge, mental challenge as well as you know, a, a whole ton of fun. So look, you, you get involved very quickly in terms of like working the bars, understanding the beers and process, and really understanding the industry. So that's great. The other thing is. Um, Brewdog works 10 times the speed of any other company mm-hmm. I've ever been in. I mean, it, it's exceptional. And one of the things that uh, I very admired about James and learned a lot is his ability to crowdsource ideas and his ability to execute them even before they should be executed, <laughs> I'll add, is unbelievable. So the, a typical day for me would be a one-line text or a one-line email going, you've got 24 hours to give me five game-changing ideas about how we're going to use the internet to become the biggest beer brand in the mm-hmm. world, right? It, that, that's an example of what he'd say. And then I'd have to write the five things. What I didn't know necessarily was he was probably asking a handful of other people the similar question. And then what he is amazing at is going, good idea, bad idea, good idea, bad idea. So he, he then get me, he then, he then we'll have a meeting, whatever, and he'd go, right, five ideas, three of them are naff, those two are brilliant, you've got one week to do numbers two and three right and i'd be going hang on a second you can't do two and three in one week that that, that just can't mm-hmm. you know he said find a way you know so it, that was incredibly exciting i mean for me as someone who's probably more naturally you know in the innovative challenger world of startups absolutely loved the thrill of literally like pitching every day because these briefs would come in all the time by the way this wasn't like there wasn't like one brief like this there were many briefs like this and 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 actually what i really enjoyed working with james uh, is that he and i thought very similarly so you know so so you know he would say to me right I've got four designs, John. Which design's the right one? And tell me why. And I go, well, that one because of this. You go, that's what I was thinking. So we got on incredibly well like that. But what the, the, the what? And I even got advised by Ali, who was the head of people there. She said, never say yes to James because you say <laughs> yes to James, he think he thinks it's been done, and when he discovers it's not done, you get fired. So he said. So she literally said, "Your problem now is you are saying yes too many times, and you're coming up with too many ideas, which he absolutely will love. But in his head, they are done the moment you've said yes." And he, and you know, I mean, you'll have seen this if you follow him on Twitter. I mean, he'll tweet something that's just come out of his head that isn't even built yet, but in his head, it's we've launched this gin or we've launched this, you know, bar in yeah. Australia, and it will just be a concept. It'll be an imaginary image of what. And it then could John be like, needs to make it. Head, I know. And then I get the task of like, this thing needs to be a reality. So what I discovered very quickly was my ability to go from idea to execution. I couldn't, I just couldn't do that. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? I I wasn't able to turn around the execution at the time and in the style that I think James expected. Because he, you know, it's his business, right? And anyone who's had a business for 12 years like he has that's become so successful knows intimately what he wants. And when he hasn't got the time to, well, I mean, I said to him, actually, because he had this great phrase, which was, this will only work if. And I loved it because he'd go around and go, he'd go to a meeting and go, this only works if our people are 10 times better than anyone else's people. Or this only works if we can get to market 10 times quicker. This only works if we don't accept this status quite, whatever. You know, so he had the, he, this only works if was kind of you know, preceded a lot of the kind of statements mm-hmm. he made. So I wrote my own version saying, Dear James, this only works if to him to go, look, actually, you've got to let me fail, right? You because you've got to let me, you've got to let me get inside your head. You've got to let me build the team around me I need. You've got to let me have the agencies that I want, not just the ones that you fired yesterday. You know, that kind of thing. And that's the only way I can see it working. So unfortunately, by the time we got to that point in our relationship, it was too late. And he he'd said, Look, 
as um, yeah, well, yeah, we, the, our, our work here has done. It seems like a dream job, exciting, great product. You said you were like very similar to James in that way, but the sort of things you're describing, maybe they were just teething problems. And why was it it was so short-lived and you couldn't figure it out? Yeah. Because uh, for, for those well, that don't know, it was only... Three months. Well, three months, which, which in dog years is, is about 17 years, which, which James constantly quotes, you know, we were working dog years, whatever. Okay, so look, the, so I think James has a high tolerance for failure for himself, yeah. uh, a very low tolerance of failure in others, right? So you'll have seen this with like the golden can thing, you know, J James will do a very big mere culpa in front of the world. We got this wrong. You know, in fact, he, he wrote a thing the other day, like, I can't remember if it was 10 or 20. 20 mistakes we made, of which number four, by the way, was hiring a senior management team, of which <laughs> I was one. So I'm like, and in fact, in a podcast, I heard him say the number one regret mistake he made was hiring I a management that, team. Yeah. Right. So I've actually, I know I've made it. To, I, we, I wasn't the only person that was hired and fired. In fact, all of them were hired and fired. So I don't feel too bad now. But, but and listen, now he only recruits from within. So, so now his tactic is, you know, people that, you know, have come up through the system and that, you know, can operate the way he wants them to and execute exactly the, the pattern. Interestingly, of course, with the IPO coming, what will, because I noticed in the grocery the other day, actually, they were saying a number of high profile people have joined the company and left very quickly, that investors might get rattled by that because it might show a inability to bring in senior level talent to, you know, the kind of that an IPO might require. Mm. So that'd be interesting to one to watch. But look, J James works so fast. So he basically called it very quickly going, I don't think it's going to work between you and I. So he just said, let's not continue, even though up to about three or four weeks before then, everything was brilliant. But he makes decisions so quickly, so decisively and and one mistake and, and literally, well, he, he allowed me a couple of mistakes. I mean, we had a couple of run ins that weren't quite kind of how he saw them. So so maybe I got you know a couple of sort of you know, early shots, but uh, so on. But I know that there are some very senior people there that have survived, but were, were that had been fired or were going to be fired. Well, for example, like you'll remember, you'll remember one of the early podcasts we did, of course, with Alex yeah. from Manifest. Now, Alex has been fired by James on two or three occasions. And then James has gone out and realized there's no other PR company that will tolerate him. So he's come back, <laughs> which is quite funny. So, so yeah, he does occasionally hire people he's fired on reflection, but uh, I'm not in that. What were the few of the mistakes you made while you were there? Well, the one that got me fired was... So one of the ideas I had... So when I first started and I went around the factory, there's this incredible machine that tests the quality of beer. Right. I mean, I, I wish I remembered the what it was called and what it did. Right. But it basically made sure that the color and the smell and, and the oxidation, you know, the carbonation rather was all absolutely perfect. And this machine could detect, you know, any changes in smell and taste and aroma, all that sort of stuff. Right. And what one of the things I learned very early and I didn't realize this is that your appreciation of a beer is very influenced by the shape of the glass. Mm hmm which I hadn't understood that before, that the shape of the glass makes quite a big difference in because a lot of your taste of beer or appreciation of beer comes from the aroma. And certain styles of glass create certain aromas, certain styles of glass increase the level of carbonation, the amount of fizz that comes up through it or, or maintains it longer and so on. There's a science behind it. And they'd invested in, I think, what was one of the world's most advanced bits of kit to do all this sensory testing. And, and I said, well, why don't we just use that kit to create the world's best beer glass, like scientifically proven mm. to give the best smell with the best carbonation, the most punk experience possible. And we can use all this clever 
technology to prove that you know, like we have literally got the world's experts in and this is definitively because you know when you go you know like Peroni's got a glass and Stella Artois have got a glass but it, you know Brewdog sort of the oh what's it called damn I've forgotten all the phraseology that's like the chalice but there's a certain or the, the certain style of you know smaller beer glass they yeah. often promote but let's invent the world's you know actually the world's best beer glass and you'll know from Brewdog that they're always about setting records challenging conventions doing things differently and James loved it absolutely loved it and, and he, he gave me a deadline on it and I did everything I could to meet the deadline but although I'd got the concepts in development I'd got the world's experts involved I'd got things in the pipeline when I did my update wasn't that it was finished mm. it was on it this is where we were and he said he basically just said, look, if I give you a deadline, that's a deadline. There's no negotiation. <laughs> and I remember him saying, I said, well, John, James, what have you done? He said, well, I'd have designed it myself. If you couldn't get the experts to do it, I'd have just gone and designed it literally by myself. So that revealed, you know, never let facts get in the way of a good story sort of thing. Or, or you go to market with a claim and then you kind of retrospectively back it up sort of thing. So that was the uh, that was the moment. It, it, this is interestingly where all the debate on how toxic Brewdog culture is. I've got two feelings about it, genuinely. And the reason probably why I haven't weighed in on it is because, do you know what? There's an element of which you need that personality to make things happen and get results, right? So part of me genuinely is impressed by him and going, his speed of thinking is unlike anyone I've ever met. His ability to kind of be creative and get to an answer, but his ability to get things done is exceptional. So he's got that ability to spot the opportunity, mm. be creative in the solution, and get the result amazingly quickly. The problem is it comes at a cost. Yeah. It comes at a big human cost. Now, this is the problem with the Brewdog culture is for him to be successful has meant, rightly or wrongly, having to be unreasonable and unreasonably demanding of people around him. And that's where you get the toxic culture. And that's why there are so many people that are left. There's a group on Facebook dedicated to former leavers who have you know, been upset by them. And that's why you got this written letter because... You know, the desire to do things in that kind of way and get the result at any cost has meant that it's come at a great cost to lots of people and individuals. Is, is there not um, a way to do that by also being nice to people? Yeah, I, well, I think so. And that, that's part of what I was hoping to do, actually, was with, I thought I might be part of that solution. Yeah was that A, I thought I could try and manage him a little mm -hmm. bit in terms of, look, look, James, we've got a choice here, right? We can do things crazy badly in two weeks, but if you can give me two months, right, I'll do it in a way that everyone loves and comes with me. But it, that kind of negotiation can't happen yeah. you know, and won't happen because he's not open to any other point of view other than yeah. his, sadly. And therefore, I think, if I'm being honest, and I, you know, I look at his pronouncements about, I'm listening, I'm learning, we're doing a review... <laughs> I can't believe it. I really can't believe yeah. it because he's not the personality that recognizes any of his own weaknesses because, and and I should say he is a genius. I mean, honestly, he's one of the most impressive people I've ever been up close and you know, up close to in terms of his thinking and ways of doing things. But it means he's such an extreme personality that he's very, almost no empathy, won't negotiate, won't compromise, all those things that actually often are required yeah. to get things done and, and build culture and build trust. Well, the, a, so there's almost no trust there. A, a big comparison you can make there is with Steve Jobs. If anyone's re read Steve Jobs' autobiography or heard the stories, mm. it seems very similar. And I guess partly why why Brewdog is successful and will continue to be. But And like when you said you thought you could help 
manage up, help see another solution. I could see you doing that easily. You, I, I've never met anyone that doesn't like John Evans, who isn't friends. You, 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 you're just a, a nice guy and you want to figure out solutions for people and think of alternatives or when it, whenever I've come at you with problems, it's just been, right, okay, well, here's how we solve it. Never, never anything other than that. Are you still, do you still ever speak to James? Is it, or is it just? No, I mean, I mean, the only interaction we had which wasn't even an interaction, which kind of made me laugh, was I ended up going to Can Lion. First time ever, actually, despite having won Can Lions before. <laughs> we'll get on to that later. Ended up, an assistant one actually kindly invited me out to Can Lions and Marketing Week at once an interview. And I thought the interview was about Can Lions. <laughs> and bless her, she spent 45 minutes going, why did you leave Brewdog, John? Why did you leave Brewdog? And you know me, I'm very diplomatic and very nice to everybody. And I think the worst thing I could say about James, right, the literally the worst comment I made after saying oh, how amazing he is and what an impressive business it is. The worst thing I said is maybe they weren't quite ready for a CMO. And what I meant by that is maybe James wasn't ready to let go of the level of control that he has on the business. That's what I mean, right? Because with a CMO, you're supposed to be in charge of marketing. James is marketing. Yeah. Right? So that's what I meant by that statement. And then he obviously read it and tweeted it out and, and basically accused me of spending the company's money, having, <laughs> you know, having lost the trust of my team. And the first reply to his tweet was someone said, geez, man, you're the Donald Trump of beer. <laughs> like this. And he took the tweet down after about half an hour. And, but I've got a screenshot of it. So, so it'll, it'll go up in the Hall of Fame as the, you know. So the, the whole BrewDog experience, it, it, it was only three months, but I feel like you've learned a lot from it, not only with what, to do what not to do how the beer industry works i feel like you've come away from that as a better person yeah yeah definitely no i i, I just i definitely have i mean i couldn't have wanted a more incredible experience if you want to put it like that seeing somebody who is easily one of the, the most biggest successful leaders we you know business entrepreneurs we've seen in a long time you know probably up there with Branson, I don't know, in terms mm. of long-term legacy and, and, and what he's done and the culture and what you can learn and all that sort of thing. So, you know, that's an incredible experience. It's reminded me who I am, I think, as well. And I think I compromised who I was in that job. And I think I'm happier being me. And I don't care if, like, you know, it's lovely what you say. You know, I, I believe in people. I believe in being nice to people. believe in paying it forward. And I believe in being creative and helping everybody. And I think... I like to think that gets paid back. You know, if you pay it forward to people, it will get paid back and that everyone wins in that situation. So, and, and I've lived that the last couple of years since leaving, mm -hmm. actually. And again, going back to like what I said before, my LucasAid experiences, you know, my belief in humanity got restored because actually what I found having, you know, you know, this is the second time I was fired in one year, which is a kind of rare experience, <laughs> you know, the fired twice club. Um but but within days, I had a number of calls, interestingly, mostly from agencies going, John, we hear you're out of a job. Mm. Can you come and help us out? And, you know, most of the things I got asked to help out on were not what I thought I would. It was things like, can you help us pitch? And I ended up doing a lot of that, actually. There's a lot of pitch training I did and pitching, actually, for agencies that said, ah, it'd be really cool to have a CMO available to help mm -hmm. us with a pitch, that, to help us think like a client, help us know what to ask, help us know how to turn mm -hmm. up and do a good job and that sort of thing. So, you know, and as I said, System One invited me out to Can Lions to go and t do a talk there about, from a client-side perspective, why creative works and, and, and how to make it better. And, you know, I'd never have had this podcast had I not been fired, to be honest, you know, because, you know, I think some of the opportunities that come when we fail are often the things that make us. Yeah. And I think people should always see failure as opportunity because what it does is it actually failure in this sense forces you to be radical. 
right? Because having been fired from Brewdog, I then had to make some money, right? So I th- so there were no CMOs jobs back. I mean, there are now, but back then there was like no one was hiring. It was a really terrible market. Mm. So I found myself, well, do I take a whole load of rungs down or do I, you know, what do I do? And and And, and I remember going out, not knowing week on week how I was going to make the money to survive. But it came in, you know, I just did the, I did the 100 day plan again, actually, I went back to let's go meet people, let's go and say, how can I help? You know, what have I got that people might want to buy? And then soon discovered that I turned into Mr. Writer Pitch, mm-hmm. you know, so, which actually was quite fun. So, so, uh, so you're now freelancing. It, it was, uh, I guess, the amount you're running was fluctuating month mm. to month, week to week goes back to what you said a few times about having a family needing to have a consistent stable income were, were you at this point thinking oh well maybe i can make this freelancing thing work I, i've got a bigger profile after the brew dog thing there's lots of cool yeah. agencies your value on paper has gone up from how much you yeah. can charge for people do you think at this point i can finally make my entrepreneurship thing work and be a full-time freelance cmo what it's so interesting it, it I, I learned so much in this time look i i'd apart from my short stint post lrs i'd never been a freelancer i'd never worked for an agency i'd never been that side and so on and i'm an incredibly confident person but actually i found the lack of security mm-hmm. over when the paycheck was going to come incredibly disturbing and nerve-wracking because you know i'm and it usually always came in and yet despite usually always coming in not knowing it's going to come in was a bit and I think I learned why people charge so much on day rates I mean you know when you're on the other side you go what you're charging this much but actually you're buying a bit of certainty for the individual and a bit of an ability to plan and, and you're respecting yeah. all the experience they've got and the fact they need to put something away to in case you know when they go on holiday you don't get paid when you go on holiday that was something I learned <laughs> of course you know we, we were looking at as a family going on holiday for two weeks and I'm like okay we've got the cost of the holiday and we got the cost of me not earning money for the holiday. Mm. So holiday then doubles in price, right? So that's, and then I also broke my ankle, actually. And this is before Zoom was, you know, where it yeah. was. I lost money for four weeks. I lost 7,000 How'd you break your ankle? Four weeks because, I, oh, mate, it's, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I, I fell down the steps at, uh, at, at the shops <laughs> because I was listening to music. And I, you know how, like, you know when you do that kind of, slight walk slash run where I was late for something (laughs) and I I sort of did a little skip sort of thing to the edge of the stairs and I slightly missed the step and then I rolled down the stairs and rolled over my ankle and it was the most painful thing I've ever done in my life it was just I had to call an ambulance I was on gas and air because I was going a bit into shock and it was horrible and it took me about four weeks to recover. And in those four weeks, I couldn't go anywhere, right? And th- th- I mean, this is only two and a half years ago. But even then, there was no option to go, oh, don't worry, John, we'll do it over teams. Yeah. That was not an option t- just two and a half years ago. It seems mad now, doesn't it, right? Because we're doing this over online. But, but you know, so I lost £7,000 in one month because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't go out there and work. So that was, t- that was tough. And that taught me, that taught me a lot. And, and I, I spoke to people that have been doing freelancing for 10 years. And they, they said, that feeling of, whoo, is it going to come in? Actually never goes. But what you do is you learn to plan for it. You learn to, you know, accept it and, and so on. And then what was quite fun is, um, and this will bring us to the podcast, actually, mm-hmm. because what I found myself doing in that time was, and, and System One actually was one of, one of my, I had four or five clients at the time. I was doing roughly the same thing for every client, which was helping them write pitch presentations, helping them write their creds, helping train them on how to develop their business, how to give them an insight into what a CMO is like. So I, I was trading all the experience and knowledge I'd built up. And, you know, I've done 
almost as many sales roles as, of, of, as I have marketing roles, actually. So I'm, I'm fairly good at that business development bit of it as well. Um, and the same thing came up, actually, which is they all said to me, oh, John, can you introduce us to your CMO mates and get us on onto a pitch? And I thought I scratched my head a bit and I thought, I, I know a couple, but I don't know as many as I don't know as many CMOs as I know agencies, yeah. because when you're the CMO, right? you build relationships with suppliers and those relationships become fairly strong because you know you're relying on these people they're giving you strategy they're executing that they're basically making you successful right so those relationships become very good so i can call on quite a few very senior influential agency side people which is what hence why i got these jobs i can't really phone up my 10 best cmo mates because they're all doing the same as me getting their job done and um this is when you and I met, of course, and, and you and I were chatting about, you know, kind of mm. podcasting. And I thought, do you know what? Podcasting sounds like, even though I have no clue how to do it, feels like a good way of me being able to phone someone up and go, hey, do you want to have a chat, you know, on a podcast? It is a lovely networking. So I kind of saw it as a, a potential networking thing that might eventually then mean that I could build up a nice, you know, group mm -hmm. of CMOs that I could then be a bit of a matchmaker, yeah. you know, do the sort of, hey, agency, you should go and meet so-and-so at this client because I think what you're selling is kind of what they need to buy mm -hmm. and stuff like and that. I'll, I'll, I'll fill in a bit of the time that, that led you being able to create Uncensored CMO, and I completely agree. It's just a great tool for networking, but you've got some other reasons of why you started the pod, which I completely agree with. But uh, you were freelancing for System One. You came on board System One as CMO while I was working at System One as marketing yeah. manager and the uncensored cmo almost came up well it, it would have been hard for you to do it lrs or brewdog because yeah, it, yeah. they may have been thinking about the amount of time you're spending on the podcast and it wasn't mutually That's beneficial it. a thing with system one system one clients yep. are often cmos or head of marketing and these are the type of people that you are networking with so not only does it it's great for you it's great for the people, the audience that listen. It's great for the CMOs that get to have a conversation, but it's also beneficial for System One, uh, which means that they're more open for, for you being able to do the yeah. podcast on the side. It, it, it's that it, it's that entirely, mate. It, it's a hundred percent that, which is beautiful as well. And you know, if if we had done, if you and I had sat there and thought we're going to do the System One podcast, brought to you by System One. I, I don't think people, I mean, you know, I think people would listen, but I don't think that many people listen because what they would worry about is, oh, you're just going to sell System 1 to us. You know, it would be like some kind of promotional mechanic. But you go, uncensored CMO, going to meet the world's best marketing thinkers and reveal what really goes on. You're going, okay, I can sign up to that. that that's going to be something I want to listen to, not be sold at. Yeah, well, we, we did have a System 1 podcast that I started. We did, um, actually, yeah. No. But I completely, yeah, agree and hate the idea of people just trying to sell through a podcast so i tried to make that as entertaining as possible just talking through ads and the benefits come further down the line as people have more affinity with your brand and with uncensored cmo they do with you i'm wondering john you said you were a complete podcasting novice yeah we, we used to joke <laughs> about this when you were coming to the office we and did. you you just had no idea where to start so why was podcasting the format that you chose and then what why was it this uncensored cmo brand that you came up with yeah well there's this guy that kept badgering me about podcasting and eventually <laughs> i felt like a obliged to say okay mate we'll do it anyway i'm, I'm kidding well then the name is cut it there's a cool story to the name right isn't there because so going back to the 
can trip that I took with John yeah. and, and, and the team from System One. I wasn't working with them then. I was just a, a freelancer helping them write better sales pitches. But John kindly said, come and be on the panel with us on the beach and this kind of thing. And I was intrigued to see what the fuss was about, you know, can lines, all that sort of thing. And it was great. And I remember I, I got asked to be interviewed on CNBC on the beach to give a CMO's perspective of can lines. And the guy was called James as well, actually, the mm. reporter. And it's on the beach. My main point was, there is so much money being spent on this, but we haven't got the clients here who are actually paying the bill. And we're not talking about advertising that works. We're talking about advertising that we want to celebrate and recognize for other reasons, right? You know, it's groundbreaking or it's purpose-led or whatever. Anyway, so I was kind of saying, the one call to action from my point of view is we've got to start celebrating the work that works and we've got to recognize the role of the client as well because ultimately they're paying for this whole big party kind of thing. So I thought that was a fairly reasonable thing to say. Anyway, when the camera stopped rolling, James came up to me and said, you're the 15th CMO I've met this week and you're the first uncensored CMO. And I'm like, oh, what do you mean? He said, no, he said, no other CMO. Now, bear in mind, I'm freelancing, so I, don't, I, I could say what I want. And I get it, right? Because previously, when I was at LRS, I got media trained mm. within an inch of my life, right? Now, I love media training. I've never had a better day in the office when I, you know, than go to the BBC studios or whatever. And you have to try and, you know, hold your own against a tough ass reporter who's trying to trip you up. I mean, it's like, it's literally like, you know, being in the boxing ring. It's great fun. But. You know, everything I said, everything I did was scripted, controlled, managed to avoid giving the right answer or to avoid giving the honest answer, but to give the politically correct answer. I mean, politically correct, not as in, you know, as in, you know, the right answer for the company, you know, their reputation, that kind of thing, right? So, So I know this, right? So I know that CMOs are very, you know, heavily scripted and controlled very often and you don't meet many that are able to say what they really think of things. So it struck me. I thought, damn it, that's a really cool name for a podcast, right? Uncensored CMO. So that's where the name came from. But in terms of in terms of why to do it, I think, look, the, the only qualification I had to be a podcaster was I like talking. <laughs> right? I mean, I think that's as far as my resume went, you know, and then and everything else was you. But I think, you know, listening to you talk about it and I think then doing some research myself, listening to Joe Rogan, you know, people like that or Stephen Bartlett, you know, just trying to listen to what they were doing. And what I, what I discovered is so much of media today is whittled down into only what we want you to hear. And we want to, you know, it's 30 second TV. I mean, 30 second TV ad these days is considered an indulgence, isn't yeah. it? Right. Most media is bang. It's one or two seconds. It's flat. It's just, this is what we're going to tell you what we think. But when I started listening after we, on your recommendation, this is some podcast, I thought, man, you really get to see behind the curtain. You get to really understand why people do what they do, what they've learned. You get some amazing stories. And actually, you can listen for an hour while you're in the gym, while you're commuting, and you just absorb this amazing information. And so what I kind of thought to myself is, you know, and people don't, people are not charging you for their time. People are giving up their time for free. This is something I was quite surprised at. Yeah. In my head, I was thinking, oh, we've got to agree a rate every single time. We've got to pay people, right? But it's this lovely like community where people it's almost a reciprocal thing people go and actually one thing i've been super proud of and i mean you and i probably talked about this enough actually but every single person that i've had on the show that i've then followed up with and said how was it for you every one of them to a man and a woman has said i sold some books i got a call well, the, i got asked to the, pitch. the incentives are aligned and this is why people don't mm. charge for for podcast appearances 
that often. In fact, no, I've never run into yeah. it. It's because you have an audience that they are able to then access. This is usually an engaged audience. It's an audience that is listening for multiple hours often. Yep. And so if you can share their story or give them a platform, then it is mutually beneficial because you then also it, get to interview them and create the content. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm really proud of that stat to say that 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 you know no one I've then I've ever followed up with and said how is it for you has ever said anything other than it's led to good things for them, mm-hmm. and I think the the other thing that's generally gives me a buzz and I, and I know you find this too but I get quite a, a steady stream of emails and and messages on LinkedIn privately from people going I was so inspired by listening to this person and it's made me go and do this and keep up the good work and I, and I, I love the way you approach it and stuff like that because. You know, you put a lot of love in and you know this, of course, as my producer, there's so much more work that goes into a podcast than just the bit that you hear in terms of editing and soundtracks and, and reviewing and prepping and notes and so on. There's a massive amount, it's probably three, four X the actual time spent yeah. on the podcast itself, which of course, you know, which you do an amazing job of and it's, it's brilliant and, and, and so on. But there's a huge, you put a lot in, don't you? And so when you get that kind of feedback, it that's what you think, yeah. That's great. You know, if he's actually made someone go and, you know, improve at their job or go and, you know, further their career. In fact, I get, I get asked quite regularly for career advice. Actually, that's one thing I've noticed is, you know, people that are at a certain stage of their career go, oh, yeah, you know, you know, lots of people. You obviously you've learned a lot in your career. I've enjoyed listening to your, you know, your wisdom and stuff. So well, mm-hmm. that happens quite a lot too. Well, so that's fun. I, hopefully this podcast has helped with some of that career advice too as we've gone through the whole career of John Evans, the, the things you've learned along the way, the failures, things that have gone well. You've had some amazing guests on the pod notably yeah. rory sutherland who's yeah. coming up on his second episode yeah coming up for number two um, yeah mark evans nils leonard some just some really good episodes what's been your favorite one so far the one that's almost moved me to tears was nils mm. actually he is i think he is one of the nicest people on the planet firstly one of the smartest people on the planet secondly and i there's something that really kind of, I guess my last two years, people have heard me talk about being fired twice and starting over and having to, you know, win everything again. It's been quite tough. But the way, I mean, we called the episode The Fast and the Fearless, the way Uncommon have moved quickly, the way Uncommon have not been afraid of what they've taken on and encouraged their customers to confront, you know, the fear of being brave and doing things differently. And I think it, it was one of the episodes that kind of got me emotionally because it kind of, it made me realize what I wish I'd done in my career or what I will do yeah. in my career and really kind of was more profound. Some of the episodes have been really great and interesting and fun and insightful, but that one, that one's the one that kind of made me went, I'm glad I did that because I, I really, I, that kind of really got me. Yeah. And we recorded in person twice and it was our first recording back mm. after. It was fun that, yeah. wasn't it? I know. Finally being. And it, it makes you realise how cool being in person yeah. is, you know, because it's the bit, it's the bants outside the, the recording where you pick up all the little mm-hmm. stories. Well, yeah. And, you know, body language. Yeah. You, yeah. you actually get a physical connection with people rather than over a screen. Yeah, it's cool. Um, that's it. So no, that's that, you know, if anyone listening wants to start with anyone, Start with yeah. Nils. Uh, I think it, you won't go wrong. So we, we've brought you up to the present day, everything you've done so far. What is next for you for Uncensored CMO? Oh, really cool. The thing is, I know you and I talk a lot, obviously, because we're working all the time on producing this. There's the, the momentum this podcast has got over the last few weeks has been just so exciting. So what, what it's, 
I think what it's made me do is realize it, it, that there's something about this that's working, which is so exciting. So it's given me an extra kind of drive to kind of push it to another level. So look, there's the obvious things about some exciting guests we've got coming up, which is cool. And I think you're probably going to see three things happen from a guest point of view. I think we'll keep on getting the legendary people with the stories to pass on, with the expertise and that we can learn from. So that, that will continue doing. But I want to do two other things. I want to, firstly, I want to get some properly amazing CMOs. Now, I've got three in the pipeline, which are going to be people that have genuinely done exceptionally well. And I, I want them to share from a client side because I've done a lot of time with agencies and industry experts, mm -hmm. as it were. But I want to talk to CMOs because I, I called this Uncensored CMO and I haven't got any CMOs on. Right. So so I need to do that. So I need, I'm going to get some really kick ass CMOs and you're going to see another conversation happen, which will give you a client side conversation, which would be really ace. Um, the other thing I want to do, and this is back to my passion, is you learn so much from startups there is so, and I love startups. So the other thing you're going to see in the next few episodes and going into next year is going to be so many more founder, startup, scale-up conversations about disruptive businesses that are doing something really cool. Because again, they're the inspiring stories that I think anyone listening out there, and I'm talking to myself as well, by the way, right? who's got a vision, got a dream, wants to do something cool, I want to give you the inspiration and I want to give you the tools to go and do it, right? So it may be success for me is you resign tomorrow from your job and go and talk to a VC, get some money and go and do what you want. I would love that. That would be the kind of email that I, I, that I want to get and go, I've done my job here if I've got someone to go and jump in and, and make mm -hmm. it happen for themselves. Well, that's a wonderful note to end on, John. Thank you so much for coming on as a guest on your own podcast and sharing the story of everything you've been through. It's been well, I hope people have listened this far because I've realised this is quite a chunky episode now, isn't it? <laughs> but it, it, it has been good. So thank you for joining. And we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming later in the week. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you didn't mind me taking over the mic for a bit longer than usual and putting myself on the other side of the interview. And thank you massively to uh, James McKibben, my producer, as ever doing a sterling effort, but this time asking the questions of me. So it was, it was good fun and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and uh, I certainly enjoyed telling you a little bit about how I got fired twice. Anyway, listen, uh, as ever, please, 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 if you want to, to hear more from me uh, and join the future episodes, do subscribe. That's the best way to be informed about what's coming up. Subscribe uh, at Apple Podcasts or on Spotify to make sure you never miss an episode again. If you want to follow me on LinkedIn, you can find me. I'm John Evans, John without an H. So just search me up and you will see regular content. And on Twitter, I'm at Uncensored CMO. So follow me there and see what you think. But listen, thank you very much. And if you want to leave me a review, just remember five is best. So um, anyway, no, love, love to get some feedback from you. So leave me a review, leave me a comment. And I look forward to you joining me next time. Thanks for listening.